Blog Talk Radio. Hello, this is Peter Joseph, and you're listening to V Radio. Hello, and welcome to this edition of V Radio. Um, tonight, we're going to have once again uh, Jack Reed from the Community Planet Foundation, and um, also Douglas Millett, uh, works with NASA on the Space Shuttle Program, to uh, be panelists tonight in a discussion of his of Jack Reed's book, The Next Evolution. Um, before we get into that, uh, there's a couple of things I wanted to go over. Um, first of which was I have updated the chip-in widgets for V-Radio on the website. And uh, there's also another one you're going to see there, a silver widget. The silver widget is for my Skype bill. Once per year I get a uh, bill for Skype. And uh, it's kind of expensive, at least at one time, you know, one time a year. But it's still considerably cheaper than you know, buying an international calling plan on your phone. So unfortunately, I had forgotten that that was going to be uh, getting updated again soon. So as a result, um, I'm going to need some help with it. Uh, the due date that's on it is when it's due. And uh, I, it's critical that I have this service in order to be able to do this show and also to be able to include you know, international panelists uh, who don't happen to have Skype. Sometimes I have to call their landline. So anyway, um, uh, that's what the silver chip-in widget is for. The red chip-in widget, as I had said in my previous show, the, uh, because I went ahead and got some much better Internet for the sake of the Zeitgeist TV, which I've been doing all day today, uh, uh, is also up and ready for July. So I'm going to be doing the radio shows every day this week because I'm going to be out of town for a while uh, dealing with some stuff. So as a result, um, if uh, you guys can help me out, that'll be great. And I promise that um, I'll make it worth your while this week. And uh, before we get into the actual show, I also wanted to kind of make a bit of an announcement. Um, recently, it had been brought to my attention that some people were doing their best to try to hijack the anonymous movement on the Internet and turn it against the zeitgeist movement, trying to identify us as a cult. Um, the possible suspects for this could be, you know, because like as they post these false anonymous videos on YouTube, uh, the account name is Anon for all of us, and then they changed it to Anon to all of us or something like that after I pointed out that for all of us was one of our previous trolls organizations. Um, and uh, I started to poke around and investigate a little bit more. and. Uh, they weren't getting the attention from Anonymous they had hoped, so they created a false account to make a video stating that the Zeitgeist Movement was against Anonymous. So they sent this video to a couple of actual members of Anonymous, and I conversed with a couple of them, and they were like, no, actually, I'll just read the, the, uh, the message that I got back from a member of Anonymous uh, in regards to me pointing out to them that this was just a farce and that they're just trying to start a fight between Zeitgeist and Anonymous. So. Here we go. Um, Anonymous is aware of the situation, and it isn't the first piece of fail like this we've seen. Attempts have been made by many other freaks to personal army Anonymous. I wouldn't worry. I haven't seen these fail mongers on the Chan's eye or raid boards. From what I have read about the Zeitgeist movement, and I said as much to fail Bill, Bill being another one of our trolls, Anonymous is more likely to join in it than protest it. Party hard, MC. So basically they created a false account trying to claim that it was the Zeitgeist Movement trying to pick a fight with Anonymous on the Internet. And uh, fortunately enough, the guys at Anonymous were smart enough to sniff that out. So um, 
if you see these fail anonymous videos, I'm just going to use the word fail since, you know, obviously that's, <laughs> that seems to be the term that people want to use for it. Um, just disregard it. It's it basically just people trying to start a fight on the internet, uh, trolls trying to gather a little army for themselves. But it's the, the real anonymous actually, from what I have gathered, not just from this message, but from many other messages, would actually favor the Zeitgeist movement as an ideal, as said just as much in this particular video. So, in any case, uh, with that being said, um, we're going to go ahead and uh, get the show started today. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. I'm working on currently getting a hold of Jacques and Roxanne because they have had access to Skype at a few of the places that they've stopped during their tour. And it's my hope to be able to do a, uh, basically a report on what's going on with them. There's a lot of exciting things happening. Uh, apparently, it's possible now that they're, they're going to be, uh, that Greece is going to do it. Greece's mainstream media is going to do a two-hour special on television about the Venus Project. And they've also been invited to, I can't remember the name of it, but basically it was some organization that was started by Mikhail Gorbachev, uh, basically an, an organization devoted to peace. So uh, it's very exciting, and it looks like, once again, as always, you know, the Venus Project has a lot more uh, luck outside of the United States. So those are the major announcements that I wanted to make. Uh, Thanks again. I'm going to go ahead and bring on my panelists to introduce themselves. I'm going to start with uh, you, Mr. Reed. Um, oh, wait. Actually, Doug just gave me an update at Peace Palace in, I'm totally going to mispronounce this, but Hague or Hog, Netherlands is uh, where Jacques and Roxanne were invited to. So that being said, go ahead and... Uh, <laughs> Hague. Thank you, Doug. So go ahead and introduce yourself, Jack, and then we'll follow up with Doug. Hi, everyone. Uh, this is Jack Reed on Neil's show again. I'm the director of the Community Planet Foundation, and our vision, uh, which I'm sure Neil is going to read a little bit from in the book, The Next Evolution, our, our vision was recorded in, in that book. So it's good to be here, Neil. It's great to have you back. Um, all right, Doug, uh, let them know who you are. All right, my name is Douglas Millett. I'm a systems engineer for the Space Shuttle Program here in Houston, Texas. Uh, I am the guy who, well, I wrote Turning Point, a space advocacy book, uh, which is on lulu.com. Uh, I made Awakening. I made Our Technical Reality. Uh, I gave a lecture to the Houston Humanists, which is also posted, and a lot of people are pulling pulling information off of. So, uh, yeah, I'm kind of knee-deep into this. That's me. Well, excellent. Um, it's great to have you guys back. Uh, we've been reading from this book now for a while, and um, I have to say I've been very impressed. Um, a lot of the information that has been offered has been you know, just, just staggering. You know, the, it kind of reminded me of the story of stuff on steroids. <laughs> just like, here, let's, just, let's really stick it in and break it off about just how much we need to do something different right now. Um, and Jack, do you want to go ahead and give your website information again for our listeners so that they can check you out as we read? Yes, the website is www.communityplanet.org, communityplanet.org. And after the show, there's a 36- or 38-minute video there with a link that you can click on, and it's pretty good briefly to show uh, 
what the Community Planet Foundation is doing in a vision that could transform the planet. The details are in the book, but the, the video on that website is actually really good at presenting the vision. Excellent, excellent. All right, well, um, without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and start reading. If you gentlemen want to mute yourselves, and uh, we'll go from there. Thanks again, everybody, and uh, let's get started. We're now in Chapter 3. I know that this will make Jack happy, because I guess the other chapters were boring, as far as he is <laughs> saying. But uh, it's called, For the Highest Good of All Life. I like that. Let's go ahead and read. So, enough with the problems we're facing on so many different levels. Although you may have a different viewpoint on some of these problems, I think we can all agree that we must not benumb ourselves to the apparent overwhelming nature of our planetary plight, and that we must do something to make the planet work better for all of us. Because physical change initially comes about from a change in consciousness, the first step in that process must be moving into the consciousness that we, out of a heartfelt response, really want to make the planet work for all life. For all the reasons I gave in the first chapter, I call that consciousness the highest good of all. I now issue you a challenge to drop your reference points and assumptions about how we have set up life to work on this planet and to look at the world very differently than you may have up to this point. Then with the consciousness of making it up for all of us, we'll start to look at how we can physically make the world work for the highest good of all. Let's start again with the basic truth. There is enough on the planet for all of us. There are enough resources and manpower for all of us to live, not only abundantly, but also in balance with nature. In fact, given an ideal utilization of those resources and manpower, we could create a model where everyone could essentially live like responsible millionaires on a pollution-free planet. Yet, in the midst of this potential for plenty, we constantly read that a lack of money is being used as the excuse for not doing, for not providing needed health care, for not cleaning up and taking better care of the environment, for not enabling retired people to live a more abundant life, for not providing better, better education, and so on. A summary of the world. If we could shrink the Earth's population into a village of precisely 100 people, with all existing human ratios remaining the same, it would look like this. There would be 57 Asians, 21 Europeans, 14 from the Western Hemisphere, North and South, and 8 Africans. 51 would be female, 49 would be male, 70 would be, nor be non-white, 30 would be white. 70 would be non-Christian and 30 would be Christian. 50% of the entire world's wealth would be in the hands of only 6 people and 6 would be citizens of the United States. 8 would be in the substandard housing, 70 would be unable to read, 50 would suffer from malnutrition, only one would have a college education, no one would own a computer. In a typical day on the planet, 250,000 people are added to the world's population, 140 species are doomed to extinction, 144,000 new vehicles are made, 12,000 barrels of crude oil are spilled into the ocean, and more now. Forests covering one half the size of Los Angeles are destroyed. Now, how do we get to this place? As a starting point for looking at where we are now and what we can do about it, let's first journey back and look at where we've come from. In the ancient world, people would trade products such as grain for sheep or cows. Eventually, to avoid hauling around real sheep or real sacks of grain to make the deals, 
they started using tokens to represent the products. This trading system mutually benefited groups because it could improve their lifestyles over what they each have, could have alone. This system continued to evolve through the centuries, sometimes peacefully and other times violently, as some groups would want more than just what they could obtain through barter. Several of these aggressive groups were the Western European, Frances, Goths, Anglos, and Saxons. These peoples, the descendants of barbarians whose histories were rooted in violence and centuries of fighting, would become the first people in history to spread their civilization across the entire planet. What they had in common was that they had become the heirs of the Holy Roman Empire and came to believe themselves to be a chosen people. But how was it that such, a small scale, that such small scale countries and economics could end up dominating the world 700 years later? India and China had all the inventions and many times the people. The answer is that the concept of individualism came out of the Western European countries. The West opted for individual as opposed to collective rights, the private ownership of property and a free market economy. The ideas of Sorry about that. The ideas of individualism, along with the worldview that these people believed themselves to be the chosen people who could do what they wanted in the world, in the hands of the limited democracies run by the property owners and the movers of money, were the basis of the phenomenal success and spread of the West through their conquests of others. 1492 marked the beginning of the systematic war waged against the native peoples of the world by Western arms, religion, and ideology. The conquest was accompanied by a genocide unparalleled in history. In the next century, over two-thirds of the native population of the Americas died through violence or disease. Columbus wrote to Queen Isabella of Spain, Our European civilization will bring light to the natives in their darkness, but for ourselves we will gain gold, and with gold we will be able to do what we want in the world. By this time, gold was, to was a to the token of choice for trading, and the West forcibly took it from the New World in exchange for death, and religion. A strong case can be made that in the pre-Columbian times, the lives of the natives of the Americas were better than they are now. Imagine the arrogance of the explorers who came to lands where people had no concept of private property. They simply planted flags and claimed lands, reaching far beyond where they could even see, for their monarchs. It didn't matter that there were already millions of people there who had lived there for thousands of years, people who viewed the land as sacred and not something that could be owned. This audacity came from the consciousness of superiority, and thus they viewed the natives as godforsaken heathens. This action by the explorers, colonists, and various financial exploiters was as presumptuous and audacious as people coming here in their spaceships from another planet, viewing us as inferior and claiming, claiming whatever land they chose for their planet. Take a look here real quick. Make sure my call... Oh, okay, good. <laughs> I heard somebody hang up. I'm glad it didn't disconnect. Anyway, um, yet it was only in relatively recent times during the enclosure, enclosure movement in the 15th century England when common rights to land were abolished and individual title to land was established. As usual, power and the concentration of wealth in the hands of a few were the motives as 15,000 peasants were cleared off 794,000 acres in Scotland to create just 29 farms with 131,000 sheep. Each farm had only a single family and imported servants. This institutionalized ownership of land was this institu sorry, institutionalized ownership of land 
was deemed necessary to launch the wool industry, and from that time on, land became something that could be bought and sold for whatever the market could bring and could be passed on from one generation to the next. It also spelled the end to the concept held by many cultures that the land was God's land and it was inconceivable that it could be bought or sold. Sorry about that. Individual ownership of land further set the stage for the exploitation of the peoples of the planet and the environment. Starting in the 17th century, people given to exploitation to further their own ends misinterpreted the teachings of Francis Bacon, the founding father of modern science, and came up with the concept that we could detach ourselves from nature and manipulate it to advance our own human interests. Ignoring Bacon's warning that nature, to be commanded, must be obeyed, from that point in time, the environment then became looked upon as something to be exploited for our own agenda. This misinterpretation of Bacon's philosophy and scientific method gave the expansion-minded Western civilizations the worldview that it was their right to manipulate the environment in order to further their short-term goals and material interests on a scale never seen before, no, sorry, never before imaginable. Then in the mid-18th century, the Industrial Revolution, born and developed in Northwest Europe, changed the world economy forever. Western consumerism was born from mass production, and with it the expectation that it was got a God-given right for them to have more of everything, and after that, more again. So the money players kept their mass production going night and day, and scoured their environment for the resources they felt they had a scientific and moral right to take. But could it go on? Wouldn't they eventually run out of raw materials? With the Industrial Revolution, the countries of Northwest Europe had taken over the world's trade. The reason their manufacturing capitalism was able to continue was through the exploitation of the third world. Other parts of the world had what the Westerners needed, so they colonized the third world to get their hands on the raw materials to sustain the Industrial Revolution and consumerism. The Europeans had the means through military strength and steam power to make their wishes felt across the entire planet. Steam power allowed the Europeans to build railroads from port to the mines and plantations and to bring in all the equipment to secure the resources. However, they did not build railroads to anywhere else or train the locals to be managers. The net result was to wipe out the local economies and to install their own local administrations and transportation systems to suit their own businesses and to shape the countries to their needs. In almost every case, that meant developing nothing else. We created copper republics, banana and tin republics, etc. These countries, which were once self-sustaining, then became dependent for survival on exporting one or two products and the success of these products in the Western marketplace. And eventually, the colonies gained independence, but they were anything but independent. While they imported from the West, they still could only export the raw resources, now hooked into world prices. The more well-to-do who controlled the countries also wanted Western products. But since the countries themselves had little money, they had to get loans from the West, which was willing as long as the third world was willing to continually rip up their countries to continue to supply Western consumerism. By 1994, the third world was $1.2 trillion in debt, with the interest alone being $50 billion a year. During the past decade, the poorest countries paid $1.5 trillion to the richest countries, and still their debt doubled. Because they can't even afford to pay the interest, the only thing they can do is to continually sell off their countries. 
i.e., the rainforest, for cattle and crops that soon destroy the fragile topsoil, leaving the land useless for further growing just to pay the interest on their debts. A world trapped in an economic box. Eventually, there won't be enough left to sell off to pay the debts, and the third world will become poorer and poorer in relationship to the wealthier countries. As an example, Mexico, a major exporter of food to the U.S., now is importing over $5 billion in food crops, mostly for the wealthy who can afford it. Thirty years ago, Mexico was self-sufficient in food. Now, though most Mexicans fall well below the poverty line and earn less than a living wage, while exporting agriculture into the world market was supposed to build Mexico's economy, now most of the Mexican people really can't afford the food that Mexico grows. They are casualties of being hooked into the world economy, and this pattern is being replicated all across the planet. In a world in which the farmers still grow an abundance of food, the farmers go broke and millions go hungry. Even within the United States, as we stated earlier in the economic section, the gap between the rich and poor is growing, and more and more people are falling below the poverty line. At the same time, remember that the national debt, with its compound interest, is also growing rapidly. It's like being in a casino poker game where the dealer averages taking 10% of every deal. Eventually, he has almost all of the money and the whole system breaks down because not enough people can pay. I'm sorry, can play. Therefore, the dealer creates more money a little at a time, loans it out at interest, and continues to have the world more and more in debt to him. The dealers have been the power elite and money brokers within the wealthy countries. There is unbelievable wealth concentrated in the hands of just a few people. Remember earlier when I asked who's got the money? Well, in our national debt of over $5.7 trillion is over 13 times greater than there is money in circulation to pay for it. Then the only way we can keep operating is to keep borrowing from those that have accumulated the money. But even the dealers may have now lost control of the system because they may eventually not be enough people in the world who can afford to participate in consumerism. And at that point, the factories and services close for the lack of a market. Most people have looked at what's happening in the economy as if we're in a stable post-industrial revolution system with some minor ups and downs, but we're not. Manufacturing capitalism was based on the exploitation of the third world. However, the population explosions, environmental damage, and the creation of a massive debt system are causing the system to lapse into chaos while the system plays out to its conclusion. Historically, the current problems are the same as they were thousands of years ago. We still have archaic political institutions in which the few dominate the many, unequal distribution of the fruits of the earth between rich and poor, and grossly wasteful consumption of those resources by the rich. While most people believe, uh, viewed the shakeup of Eastern Europe as a triumph for freedom, we viewed, this, viewed it as a primarily economically driven, and that situation continues. So we viewed it as primarily economically driven. The Western countries may be a few years behind as the situation is played out to its logical conclusion. The third world first, then the poor developed countries, then us. All this is happening against the backdrop of pollution and environmental destruction that is threatening the continuation of life on the planet. Our economic system has impoverished the planet at the expense of most of its inhabitants. But instead of reining it in, we're imposing it everywhere on Earth. David Suzuki, author and professor of biology, University of British Columbia. Stuck in an unsustainable economic system. Our economic system is based on a fantasy, the fantasy of unlimited resources and thus the potential for unlimited production. 
As we continue to alienate ourselves from nature by seeing it as a resource to use and abuse, we are now rapidly using up those resources in our non-sustainable economies. We are nearing the time when we have to face the reality that our economic system is doomed. Since our plight was excellently stated in the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation's program, Trading Futures, Living in the Global Economy, I will quote from that show. All life on Earth survives the same way, making a living out of what the planet provides, and we are no exception. Everything that's vital to our survival comes from nature, air, water, soil, minerals, but the supply is finite, and somehow we've forgotten that. Yet we believe that our economy can keep on growing forever, far beyond the limits of the natural world. We have come to think of nature as raw material, fuel for our industrial machine. The economic perspective sees nature as a resource for us to extract and use, instead of as the foundation for all life on Earth. That's what's carving up the world and denying us a sustainable future. We're stuck in an unsustainable, an unsustainable economic system, and we're hitting the limits. The end of that quote. Hey, but if our GNP keeps increasing, how can we possibly be heading for economic disaster? Again, let me quote from Trading Futures, Living in the Global Economy. If the GNP records production, but it doesn't record depletion of resources or the damage we cause to air, water, and soil, like governments around the world, we cook our books, excluding the real costs of our own economy. With this type of bookkeeping, a country could exhaust its minerals, cut down its forests, erode its soils, pollute its aquifers, and hunt its fish to extinction, all without showing a drop in the gross national product. This type of accounting turns negative costs into pluses. Cigarettes kill 35,000 Canadians each year, but the medical costs help keep the GNP healthy. The Exxon Valdez oil spill created jobs, sales, and demand for services. The cleanup was perversely a $2 billion shot in the arm for Alaska's economy. Econom another quote, economists so far haven't found a way to put the environmental costs on the balance sheet. This accounting system supports conventional economic analysis when global resource depletion and environmental damage aren't counted, things look good. At the end of that quote, but things don't look so good to Herman Daly, senior economist for the World Bank, who noted in the same program that, quote, we've moved from an era of economic growth into an era that we might call anti-economic growth. That means that expansion to the physical scale of the human economy now increases environmental costs faster than it increases production benefits. So, at the margin, we're increasing costs faster than increasing benefits. This is making us poorer, not richer. I think in many ways it's not an exaggeration to say that we're living by an ideology of death. We're pushing into the capacity of the biosphere to support life. Daly also notes the fallacy of the GMP as a measure of our financial status because the GMP does not indicate whether we are living off income or capital, interest or principal. It is misleading when we are using up our resources. This is because the depletion of resources is not considered any different than sustainable yield production, which is the only true income. But there is a substantial difference between the way economists look at GMP and that true income for the value of a sawmill is zero without forests, the value of fishing boats is zero without fish, since the time of the Industrial Revolution, we have been using up the resources that support all life on the planet. It's so insidious because it's happening slowly enough that we don't see the day-to-day -day effects of our folly, and because most of the decision makers can still buy almost anything they want, they don't see that we're living by an ideology of death. The Sorcerer's Apprentice 
The good news is that it's good news that the current economic system is in jeopardy. It's good news that not only because we may be forced to do something about that threat to the environment, but also because the system already is not working for growing numbers of people. At the risk of repetition, let me hammer the point once more. There are enough resources and manpower on this planet for all of us to live here abundantly, very abundantly. Given this reality, looking at what we are doing to ourselves, to others, and to the environment makes what we are doing seem really, really crazy. Using money as the excuse for not providing basic human needs and needed services is really crazy. Money is an artificial construct. You can't eat it or shelter yourself with it. It's basically an agreement. Even in the beginning, though, that concept was based on the weeness and the vainness of groups of people and individuals within those groups, and that concept just doesn't make sense anymore in a world that now needs action taken to make the system work for the continuation of life on the planet. As an example of the absurdity of our current economic model, a few days after the devastating 1994 earthquake in Kobe, Japan, the Los Angeles Times ran an article titled, Major Rebuilding Effort Could Aid Economic Growth, analysts say. The article began, quote, the killer earthquake that hit western Japan on Tuesday caused immense damage likely to run into billions of dollars, but the reconstruction effort should give a boost to the economic growth, analysts said, end quote. A half century ago, the onset of World War II helped lift the world out of a depression. What's wrong with this picture? Why do we have to have disasters to assist our economies? If a disaster can spark economic growth, why can't we pick any disaster, like pollution, environmental damage, health care, billions of the world's people living on the edge of survival, or the 40,000 children who starve to death every day, and do something about that? Is it just because we are numb to these daily disasters? If all those resources and manpower were there to be put into use, why can't we put them to use without a disaster and feed people who are starving, shelter people who are homeless, and restore the environment? Is the whole system we created to serve us the everyone-for-themselves paradigm now beyond anyone's control, or was it never designed to make the world work for everyone in the first place? All right, that's a half hour in, so I'm going to go ahead and pause there. Um, so I can bring on my panelists. We generally have like a half hour of reading and a half hour of talking. Um, I'm going to apologize for those brief pauses we were having. Um, somebody was trying to call me and didn't get the message that I can't talk right now. <laughs> but um, go ahead and uh, I'll start with you, Jack. What comments do you have so far? Um, you know, I haven't read my book in a, in a while, so it's just interesting. I was sitting here uh, reading along in the book with you, and you, you did a fabulous job. There was a few words that were yeah, here and there, but it, it happens. It, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's tough to do the reading, but uh, yeah, it's, you know, I before I got online, I was starting to look at uh, Douglas's uh, The Awakening series of videos that, that he had there, so I'm sure he's got some uh, interesting observations on this too, but it's just, you know, as I said, it's just, it's just like we're under this mass hypnosis that we can't do something because there's, there's not enough money. It's like, what, you know, it's just crazy. I mean, it's so absurdly crazy that it's hard to comment on it. What, what we're saying is we can't do something because there's not enough cooperation. Right. And, and, and that's, that's the bottom line to, to what I'm saying here. 
that's you know it's it's really interesting that you put it that way because that's absolutely right. I don't think that people recognize that saying that because we don't have enough pieces of meaningless paper, we can't save the world. That there's not enough money to save the world, so therefore we just throw our hands up and just essentially wait to die. That that just doesn't make any sense to me. Now, now Doug, uh, he did make an excellent point, and I was thinking the same thing, was that, you know, you covered a lot of this stuff in your film, The Awakening. Do you want to comment? Uh, sure, I did. What I, what I tried to do was... Uh put it in a direct historical context uh, and grabbing off of other things that I have seen. I mean, as we all know, you don't come up with anything out of thin air off the top of your head. So I saw enough things over the past couple of months doing research that I decided to, to throw that together in the way that I did. And, and yeah, it's it basically shows how the financial construct has gone out of whack and uh, the notion that we don't have enough money, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, one of the video shorts that I made that's on my YouTube channel is called A Few Simple Questions. And it's a five-minute and 18-second breakdown of every social problem and the simple questions of do we have the resources, do we have the manpower, do we have the capability, and then the last question is do we have the money for, to globally solve these issues. And, of course, you, it, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek, humorously done, but it showcases the obvious fact of yes, 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 no, yes, 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 no, yes, 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 no. For every, for every single question, uh, we have the capability in abundance to fix these problems, but we never have the money to fix these problems. So there is a fundamental issue when you're letting pieces of paper that have no intrinsic value other than what you give them to be the shackle and roadblock that prevents you from actually implementing the logical and most humane solutions to fix the problems that we have. I agree. It's, it's scary to me that we, we think of it like that. It's, you know, it, we don't have enough cooperation that, as Jack pointed out, is, is an excellent way to frame it. And Jack talks about that all the time. He's like, you know, we don't have enough. The question is not, do we have enough money? The question is, do we have enough resources? And um, we do. You know that, it, it, and you see it in other situations. I mean, it's like, you know, it, it's obvious that the solution, for example, let's say that, um, let, let's scale this down. This is one of Jack's favorite of my analogies. We'll say we'll just scale it down to a human family. Okay, my personal crisis is that I'm hungry, so. I don't say to myself, because my mother doesn't charge me for food in the house because I'm part of a communal living situation, I don't say, well, I can't solve the crisis of me being hungry because I don't have slips of paper. I just go make a sandwich. You know, <laughs> there's so many things in life that could be like that. We could just go do it, you know, um, and, and we put these limitations on it. And, you know, money's supposed to be this tool that's supposed to open all of these doors you know, and it's not. It, 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 in fact, it, it, and when you talk about the psychology of it, that makes it even worse. Uh, Robert Anton Wilson, I read his book called uh, Prometheus Rising, and it was essentially a book that talks about how, you know, people are, are uh, put together, um, how they become conditioned to think of things. And he talked about the psychological value of money and the way it affects us psychologically. He called it bio-survival tickets, actually. Um, that people don't recognize that that's what money means to them, is that it is, it's, it, is, it is survival on paper. 
It is security. It is power. In some cases, it's sex appeal. You know, it's, it's everything. And, and I've, you know, recognized that, you know, when we talk about the effects of, um, we talk about the effects that this has on people psychologically, uh, because of the situation in my own home, money got really tight, okay? And I noticed a major shift in attitude and consciousness within my household. Me and all my roommates, all of our relationships changed. People got grumpier. People started having more arguments you know, over just dumb things like, you know, you ate some of my eggs out of my 99-cent box of eggs became important all of a sudden, you know. And it, it's, and it was because of that fact, you know, that people started to pull away, you know, and the everyone-for-themselves attitude started to come out of it because people basically panicked because there was a financial circumstance. Basically, you know, all of my listeners know about my divorce by now, but my divorce has created a financial situation that has made everybody in the house stressed out insecure, and that caused them to pull away from each other, you know, so, and I'm, and I'm working on that, and I fixed a lot of it, because I've pointed out that we can just support each other, and that's starting to pull everybody together, but, but the point is, though, is, is that there is a serious psychological impact behind money, and when people think that they don't have it, it, it takes on its own living, it, it kind of reminds me, like, we just had a show about divorce and marriage, people have a mental a fixation with marriage, the marriage institution means something to them specific, as if it has its own mind, its own, you know, its own thoughts, its own limitations based on that. And the, the same thing is true of the institution of money. Did you have anything further, Jack? Uh, the other thing that's interesting about that whole money game is, is for, and I'm sure many of the your listeners are sophisticated enough to know this about who controls that game right now when they, when the central banks uh, for most of the countries of the world create the money and then loan it to the governments at interest. So when they're talking about the world's wealthiest people right now, and they always mention Bill Gates and now he's, supposed to be supplanted by this person in Mexico who's got uh, control of a lot of the media in Mexico. These people are paupers compared to who really has the money, which are these central banks and bankers. It's estimated, I was looking it up on the internet, and it's estimated that the Rothschilds family, for instance, has something like $100 trillion or better in resources. So this game that's being played out, this monetary game, the people who, are, who know what's going on, they're very indebted to the system. There's a great quote that I was trying to find here about the Rothschilds brothers and uh, talking with a fellow, or writing to fellow conspirators and, and about how the, the people uh, who are indebted to them will not want to rock the boat, and the rest of the people are going to be so focused on survival that they're not going to even question the system. Right. And that's where that analogy of that I was saying in the book about it's like being in a in a casino game, and they keep taking a percentage off of each deal. But that's all these centralized bankers have to do, and they have got total control 
over this money game and basically have been able to create whatever they want to in the world to enrich themselves, and that includes most of the wars and a lot of the other things that are going on. So that's another great reason to stop playing this game is this game was created for them. It's being run by them, and it's, it's a losing game for most of the people of the world. And until we stop playing this game and start to do cooperation, it's just those people are going to continue to get rich until the system, of course, breaks down completely, in which case it's not going to do them much good at that point. But, uh, you know, we just need to play a different game. It reminds me yeah. of like, kids who, like, might be playing a video game. Maybe they're really good at Super Street Fighter 2, so they don't want to play anything else because they're winning. <laughs> what were you going to say, uh, Doug? As I say, it's also based off of uh, 17th century economic practices in a world that was completely unlike the way it is now. And one of the, I'm starting to grow fond of kind of my own quote that I made up is you can't use 17th century ideology in the 21st century. It doesn't work. And that's why we're seeing the fundamental breakdown when the entire system is predicated on human labor for a wage which then buys the necessities of life to exist, when you can completely eradicate and replace human labor with more efficient, higher production automated systems and basically wash out the need for human labor completely, you've completely destroyed the variable system that governs that 17th century ideal. And that's exactly what we're running into now. Uh, like I, tell, I try to tell people all the time, I'm not anti-capitalist. I don't hate, I don't think money is evil. I think it's old. It's outdated. It's not that it's bad. It's that it's old. The system doesn't work anymore given the paradigm shift that was brought about starting at around 1980 with the advent of the smaller computers, not the ones that take up entire buildings, but the personal computer, advanced computing power, robotics, and automation. The moment that started becoming advanced in the 80s and now it's tremendously robust you know that that it's impossible to ignore how robust computers advancement and technology is just look at the craze over the next iphone that's coming out right now so um when you start looking at it that in that way you realize that the equation and i go back to my science and engineering geekness if you were to make any if you were to run an experiment with three variables for 2,000 years every day, the same experiment, but never change those variables, you are going to get the same exact result over and over again, plus or minus a tolerance limit based on those variables. The very moment you take away or drastically change just one of those variables, your entire experiment is drastically different. And that's what happened when the computer and automation and robotics came onto the scene. It changed the variable so much that the experiment is now broken, and it exploded, and that's what it's doing. You know, and the funny thing is, I mean, uh, I'm, I'm going to first. I'm going to take a second here to quote somebody uh, in the um, uh, the chat room. Seth Ir uh, stated, "Well, we wouldn't settle for 17th century medicine. <laughs> you know, <laughs> not going to subject myself to that. You know, why would I settle for 17th century economics?" And what you're saying, Doug, is very true. And, and what's worse about it is that when you debate with some of these people, they quote stuff from 17th century 
uh, econo- you know, economists as if that's supposed to be like Bible doctrine. This is one of the biggest problems that I've had with arguing with some of these people is that in some cases they just state these things as if they are empirical fact. My favorite one that I've probably mentioned a billion times is the guy who told me that technological unemployment was a fallacy and that it is proven, historically proven, that wages will increase with productivity, as if it's a law of physics that dictates that an employer will give you a raise just because you've become more productive, which is the opposite of the truth. We're finding that. If it wasn't the truth, we wouldn't have out. Not only that, it's hard to get a raise if you're fired because a robot's doing your job. (laughs) Absolutely. But the point I was getting is that he's expecting this leap of faith is just going to end the argument, is that because historically in the past people felt compelled to reward their workers – that, that must, therefore must mean that it's always going to happen. It will forever happen. And if you just continue arguing about it, then, you know, then there's something wrong with you. It reminds me of, I mean, like, I'm not going to get into the global warming argument, but like in, the, uh, in uh, Gore's movie about it, um, he, he points out, you know, we're just going to drop a big block of ice in the North Sea, and it's going to work. You know why? Because it's going to work. And don't say anything else. He's like he starts cutting off the child who's going to ask questions. Are you sure this is going to work? Yes, it's going to work because we said so. And and forever, you know, wages are going to increase just because productivity increases. And then the other thing, you know, just as you pointed out, they they say things like technological unemployment is a fallacy, and this is what they go on. And it's generally stuff in the 17th century. They basically quote by historical precedent that the technocrats have been saying that technological unemployment was going to be a problem forever and that they've always been wrong, and that therefore they always will be wrong. As if comparing things like the cotton gin to, you know, fully automated factories that, you know, only need technicians and not very many of them to function, is if that even, like, makes any sense or is in any way equal. You know, even the cotton gin alone had vast, like, um, applications, and the only reason it didn't put a bunch of people in poverty is because all it did was replace slaves, you know, if it had, you know, if it had replaced people who were dependent on those jobs, then we would be worried about it. You know, that's, and it, basically, you know, it, at the end of the day, we're not dealing with the same world at all. Just like you said, it totally changes the paradigm of everything when you're talking about machines that can do a job better, longer, faster, more efficiently, with a lower margin of error, that do not form unions, do not ask for sick days, do not ask for days off for vacations, do not ask to, for days off to go watch their children's baseball games. You know, it's perfect. How can you expect anything else? You know, and that's why I've always said the only thing that competes with the efficiency of a machine at this time is the desperate nature of a worker in a country where they are so desperate that they'll take whatever you give them. I've, right. got, nothing, I've got nothing at all against the efficiency of of uh, robotics and replacing workers uh, in a cooperative society where the needs of one were the concern of everyone, we would just simply cut out a lot of jobs. But in the every person for themselves approach, people need jobs in order to survive. And when the politicians and the economists talk about we need more jobs, I say nonsense. We need more cooperation. We need fewer jobs because you can't seriously talk about energy consumption until you address that most of the energy and most of the resources 
on this planet go into making things that would not exist in a cooperative society. Absolutely. So, so the 85, uh, Schumacher, one of the uh, leading economists of Europe, and Bucky Fuller, too, when he did a study, they showed that 85% of the jobs that existed only existed because of the lack of cooperation between people. So I, I intend to make a video someday of showing this, the incredible inefficiency of the every person for themselves system and all the jobs that it creates and all the nonsense products that, that it creates as opposed to people having more time for connecting within themselves with other people, with nature, for improving the environment. We could do all of those things. and We could redefine wealth as use and access rather than possession, and, and we could be doing far better. Also, Neil, I want to, because I found this quote, I didn't want to lose this quote. Cause Go ahead. I, when I was writing the book, I was not dealing with fractional reserve banking as much as I'm aware of what's going on now, and I talked about the Rothschilds quote, so I found it. It's it's uh, from June 25th, 1863, when they're talking about this fractional reserve banking system where they basically take over the economies of the countries of the world. And the quote is, the few who understand the system will either be so interested in its profits or so dependent on its favors that there will be no opposition from that class. Right. But, well, on the other hand, the great body of the people mentally incapable of comprehending the tremendous advantage that capital derives from the system will bear its burdens without complaint and perhaps without even suspecting that the system is inimical to their interests. That's the end of the quote. They're writing to some of their fellow conspirators. Yep. No, I, I see that. It's, that's actually <laughs> very profound that they, they would take it down that road. Now, um, once again, if anybody wants to call in on this particular subject, we have about 10 minutes before I generally would start reading again. If anybody has anything further also on the call who wants to go ahead and add it, we're going to be doing that here. I want to thank everybody once again for tuning in to V-Radio. Please visit v-radio.org. Um, and uh, please consider a donation to keep V-Radio on the air. Uh, now, that being said, um, Douglas, does, does anything else pop into your head about this before we continue? No, I think we've got this horse pretty much covered. Good. And anything else from you, Jack? I just invite people to look around as they go through life and, and think about things differently in terms of what would this look like if people were cooperating? What would this whole oh, thing look like if cooperation were the medium of exchange and where we were really designing this whole thing so that it would work for everyone? And that's what we did in, uh, when, uh, in putting together a description of what it would look like and how it would work that I wrote the book around the ideas that our group uh, put together for that community uh, are, are what's contained in the book. And I just simply wrote the book around that vision that we took three years to create. Absolutely. Now, what were you saying, Doug? 
one of the things you guys were touching on, and I, I spaced it for a second, but now it came back to me, was uh, availability of resources. One of the arguments that we get, and this goes to the to the getting away from the me me and going to the us us, you know, uh, kind of way of thinking, is how much waste and well, how much waste do we generate with the me me scenario with rapid consumption by trying to create 30 versions of a product? to cater to all these different income demographics and everything else where you've got all these waste of materials going towards nonsensical products that break in short order that are cheap and whatnot, things of that nature. And if we were to switch over to the resource-based economy system, one of the arguments people you know, say is, well, we, how do you know that we'll have the resources? And we'll think about it for a second. Imagine if we stopped making 40 versions of something and just made the top five. And that way, everybody, I mean, you got to have a little bit of variety because not everybody's going to want the sterile one kind of object thing. I don't even want that. I mean, there's some phones that I like, so I'll use phones as an example, and some that I don't. They might have the same technical capabilities, but they might be ergonomically different. They might not appeal to my eye. So there is the, the factor of beauty and aesthetic things that go into into products and how things look, but there's only about five or six variations that you can really get into before you start just seeing ridiculous redundancy in how things look. But what can stay the same is functionality and capability. The aesthetics just is kind of part of the package. So if we start moving towards that kind of system and start making the best of everything that lasts the longest, and the only upgrades necessary are basically software upgrades and not necessarily hardware upgrades, then we end up saving a massive amounts of resources in the new system, which we are the complete antithesis of today. That's another uh, reason. Oh, go ahead, Doug. I thought you were done. Oh, I, no, I want to come in and say I completely agree with that, and these products should be made so that every part is totally recyclable or reusable. And the second thing is that uh, along with what Douglas was suggesting, is if people were really cooperating, then we, in, in, as opposed to all these patents and trade blocks and everything, it would be the brightest of the bright getting together and designing these things so they really can do these things the most beneficial and efficient way possible, as opposed to the competition where people try and like take market shares away from somebody else. Let's just make these things so that it's the best for everybody. Yep, and that's... Absolutely. Go ahead. Absolutely, and, and once you start... Um, once you start, you know, helping the entire... Let's go, for example, the entire planet getting up to basically a first-world high-level status. Imagine all of the brain power that will suddenly come available, the human potential that is now currently wasted because those people are starving, dying, and living terrible lives. If you were to bring the whole world up, you never know. We might have already gone through a million Einsteins in the past, in the third world, in the past 50 years because they have never, ever had the chance of the opportunity to grow and become something special and amazing. But if we could switch over to the RBE and, and um, do everything I can to make that happen, then you unlock all this brain potential 
so that they can collaborate and work, as Jack was saying, to make the absolute best possible series of products, the top six or whatnot, that would be most beneficial for the entire planet, which is the ultimate demographic. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, another thing to take into account with that is the change in um, education. Jacques talks all the time about how there's no reason we should only have one Edison, one Tesla, one Einstein, you know, and w one of the things that you tend to find that these people usually have in common is that they were homeschooled. <laughs> yeah. um, like Thomas Edison was, uh, uh, what was it, dyslexic, so he was getting made fun of a lot at school, so his mom brought him home and, you know, and, and taught him there. You know, uh, these are the kinds of things, you know, Jacques' educational background is extremely, you know, different than, you know, than normal. And it's not to say that brilliant people can't come out of the standard education system, but what I tend to find is, like, people like uh, Marcin uh, Jagabowski from the open source ecology movement, he got there about halfway through his Ph.D. in physics. He was like, this sucks. I'm just going to finish it because I need that stupid piece of paper, but I'm not learning anything I really want to learn. And these people are not really dedicated to making the world better. You know, people can wake up and get out of that, and those people are exceptional. But eventually, the world will be, you know, we would we could reform education in such a way to just make that excellence is the norm, you know. And if somebody needs extra help, then then we find ways to engineer and deal with that rather than because that's another thing. Like I went through the education system, and because I have um, something called dyscalculia, which is essentially dyslexia with mathematics, the board of education had no program for that, so I just kind of had all kinds of problems academically, they would send me to the special ed classes for people, you know, who just like were missing things in that, but that, that wasn't helping me. You know, I mean, Einstein, I, from what I had heard, I don't know if this is accurate. Somebody told me that he didn't even get out of high school. Um, I don't know if that's true or not, but, but, you know, he had all kinds of problems too. I mean, the, the, his potential could have been even further if they had found other ways to teach him. He had to, paint his door bright red to be able to find his home. You know, that's, that's an example of the kind of, like, memory problems that he had. And generally, overall, that's another thing that needs to change about our culture is that this, this notion that making fun of a kid for being smart, which, which is very prevalent in all schools, needs to just go away. And to be honest with you, I think that should be treated as, you know, as, as much of a problem as, like, most of the things that, our educational people are concerned about. You know, you're worried about them bringing a, you know, toy to school or something. Why don't you spend a little bit more time dealing with these kids that are essentially totally counterproductive to what their purpose is supposed to be there for and counterproductive to everybody else's purpose in being there. You know, we're going to let these kids terrorize people, you know, for being smart. That's, you know, that's so crazy, you know, and when you look at Jacques' uh, school experience, he got a lot of that, you know. So um, that being said, um, any further comments before we start reading? Read on. I'm good. All right. Okay. We got on here. It starts off with a uh, what looks like a newspaper quote in Japan, devastating jolt in Japan, major real rebuilding effort could aid economic growth analysts say. Oh, yeah, you talked about this earlier. Tokyo, the killer earthquake that hit western Japan on Tuesday caused immense damage, likely to run into tens of billions of dollars, but the reconstruction effort should give a boost to economic growth, analysts said. These sorts of things bring out the worst in economists because a disaster is good for economic growth as long as someone is willing to pay for rebuilding, said Jesper Cole, head of the economic 
and Markets Research for J.P. Morgan Securities Asia. You know, something just clicked into my head, and it's, it, I have to say it, but it occurs to me that when you look at something like a disaster as, a, as an opportunity for profit, that immediately clicks into my head the medical industrial complex. You know, the people that apparently are withholding cures and vital medicines, you know, because it's, you make more money on treating the diseases rather than curing them. Um, that little tangent over with, I'm going to read on. Now, what has happened to us with this old exchange system is like what happened to the Sorcerer's Apprentice in Disney's movie Fantasia. The apprentice, needing to fill a large container with water, picked up the wizard's cap and created a broom with arms to haul buckets of water for him. The apprentice, pleased with success as being achieved with minimal effort, then dozed off and dreamt of his newfound power to control the universe. Just as he was dreaming that he could direct the rise and fall of the waters, he was awakened by the rising water level from the now out-of-control broom. As he tried to control his creation, he only succeeded in creating a rapidly escalating dilemma. By not being able to stop the legions of water-carrying brooms he set into motion, the waterers threatened to completely um, inundate him. Only the wizard's reappearance saved him. And I'm dead. Thanks, Jack. <laughs> Maybe we should make you read this. Um, at the first broom, uh, broom carrying, at first the broom carrying the buckets of water, the money exchange system seemed to make trade easier. But as more players got involved and people thirsted for power positions, the system eventually got out of control and took over. It became a monster with a life of its own, burying the individual needs of most people. With that monster, which is really an illusion because money is an artificial construct still in control, now everyone thinks that they're at the mercy of the illusion. Yet we have so bought into that illusion that we now believe ourselves as people to be at the mercy of money and or the lack of it. With the survival of the planet in the balance, let me say again that this is really crazy. However, the wizard represents the consciousness of the highest good for all concerned. We need that wizard consciousness now. The wizard would tell us that, in truth, economics is a philosophy, not a science. Our Federal Reserve can put into, it, put into or take out of our economy as much or as little money as they want, whenever they want. Nowadays, a lot of money is not even tangible. It's electronic. And the Fed can just create it and put it wherever they want or make it disappear. If a, if a philanthropic wizard could create, without the Fed knowing, billions of dollars to provide housing, health care, education, and sustainable income-producing businesses for those in need, this would have a negligible effect on our economy, except for helping those people. Meanwhile, as we pointed out earlier, natural disasters become a boon to the economy. Again, this is crazy. We don't need these outside stimuli. We can do whatever we want, health care, education, restoring the environment, but at this point, it's more politics than it is economics. And every one of the players has just agreed to play everyone for themselves economics the way we're doing it. Also, the U.S. and the big money interests can exert enough pressure on foreign countries to get them to play the same game. Therefore, it's only, a political, it's only a political reason why we don't end suffering, hunger, and poverty. Again, economics is a philosophy, not a science. Why don't more of us ask the question why we use lack of money as the excuse for not doing what is needed to save this planet? As a result of our burying into the money illusion, the present economic, political, and social systems look like they were either created by a madman or maybe by just a few self-serving people around whom the rest of society has rotated since the days of the pharaohs, monarchs, and the landed wealthy and nobility from the feudal systems. 
In truth, capitalism eventually replaced feudalism. But control of, by the power money elite has, never, has really usurped capitalism and democracy. Historically, we have just about always lived by the golden rule. He who has the gold rules. This has resulted in our being, so in our being so entrenched in thinking individualistically, trying to get by in this every person for himself system, that we haven't stopped to think about what would really work for all of us and for the planet. We have been behaving like people in battle. We want to have more stuff and more power control than the next person, even if at the expense of, expense of someone else. When we're not doing this individually, it's group against group or country against country with staggering amounts being spent on weaponry. Meanwhile, more than a billion people are undernourished and three billion in poverty, one half of humanity excluded from the global marketplace due to the everyone-for-themselves economic system. I keep using the terminology everyone-for-themselves. What does that term mean? Well, it literally means that everyone basically acts out of his or her own self-interest. It means, therefore, that we don't get together and really explore how we can make a situation work for all of the parties involved. I mean really taking the time and care to thoroughly and creatively explore how we can positively make that situation work for everyone involved and everyone and everything that the solution would affect. Instead, the parties involved are generally preoccupied with what effect the outcome will have on their own positions. They are concerned that others do not get more of, or get better, yeah, I'm sorry, or get a better deal than what they get, and they therefore are very watchful and suspicious of the others, others involved. There's an interesting little exercise I use in the team building work I do. The group pairs up and two people stand facing each other and grips hands shoulder high. I tell them that the object is to score as many points as possible in one minute, and that way to score a point is, is, the way to score a point is to touch the other person's shoulder. It sort of looks like two people about to do standing arm wrestling. When I say go, that's exactly what most pairs, pairs proceed to do. At the end of one minute, some people have struggled mightily and have managed to stand off scoring no points. Other people have dominated their perceived opposition and earned a score of 10 or whatever to their partner's zero. I never say to the group that the object is to defeat the one part one's partner, yet in, every, in our every person for himself society, that's exactly what most people are predisposed to do. Others mildly cooperate and score a few points, and once in a while I get a pair of people who get that they can accumulate the most number of points by really exercising their creativity and cooperating with one another. <laughs> that's really brilliant. In a minute's time, it's possible for those creatively cooperating pairs to score a combined 500 points. At the end of the exercise, those that entered into the everyone-for-themselves power struggle are tired and stressed. Those that mildly cooperated are still experiencing some degree of isolation and being tuned out, and those who creatively cooperated feel elated and energized. This exercise is a perfect metaphor for the everyone-for-themselves paradigm versus a highest good-for-all approach. The everyone-for-themselves paradigm has winners and losers, vying for a perceived limit amount of resources, whereas the highest good approach has no such bounds and we are limited only by our imaginations. In the above exercise, the power struggle produced small scores as compared to the cooperative approach producing scores several times higher. It's like when we use the lack of money as the excuse for not providing needed services for each other and for the planet. There's a very limiting approach. That is a very limiting approach. Of course, we can provide adequate health care, nutrition, and an abundant standard of living for everyone while still protecting and healing the environment if we just choose to let go of this mass hypnosis that has gripped us for thousands of years. It's just like the exercise in the competition-based model. It isn't possible to do this, but we do not have to continue buying into this paradigm. 
There has been a lot of brainwashing to convince us that cooperation on the scale of making life work for everyone is bad or won't work. We don't question the need for everyone for themselves paradigm because for thousands of years, variations of that system have been the only models presented for us to look at. More accurately, I should say that this is how history has been taught to us. Drawing on the work of the noted archaeologist Marija Gimbutas Rien Osler in her book, The Chalice and the Blade, gives us a remarkably different picture about peaceful and abundant cooperative societies that existed for thousands of years. Pick it up. It's worth reading. Conveniently, though, we were not taught much about these alternative cultures, which generally were far more successful and long-lasting than the power-based models that now are the norm. Well, you might say that it is to be this way because even in the human species, it's survival of the fittest. The weak don't survive and flourish. In Darwin's Origin of the Species, evolution was defined in terms of adaption and the continuous struggle to survive. The theory was immediately embraced by the power brokers of the last century in order to justify the squalid conditions at the onset of industrialization. Mankind was, not seen, was seen as not being exempt from the domination by the fittest, and this supposedly was all a natural process. However, Darwin never talked about survival of the fittest, a concept often credited to him, but rather he described those who survived as fittest for a specific ecological niche. Yet, while Darwin's theory might explain some aspects of evolution, in its nakedness it is a narrow approach. Cooperation has also played a huge role in creating our world. For example, flowers have evolved vivid colors and inviting scents to attract bees, which pollinate and, as a result, provide for the perpetuation of the species. In fact, the interdependence and cooperation among the species is the very backdrop of evolution. Among all the species, the choice is there for us, as humans, to fully embrace cooperation for the highest good rather than trying to dominate each other and the world's resources. It's amazing that we unquestioningly believe that competition and the survival of the fittest is how we have to do things in our capitalistic, democratic way of life. In his 1986 book, No Contest, Sociologist Alfie Cohn analyzed hundreds of studies conducted over the last 60 years that compared cooperation with competition. His findings concluded that both in business and in education, cooperation consistently outproduced competition. In the next section, I'll give you a very graphic example of the cooperation of cooperative synergy that is available to lift a whole group of people. The everyone-for-themselves struggle for survival ideology is also a doomed approach for humankind because it does not take into account that the Earth is a closed system with finite resources. We can't just take and take and take for personal gain. It has to be balanced for all of us. Otherwise, we will be just like all the species that have disappeared because their habit habitat became depleted and no longer capable of supporting life. A revolution? Or do we have to keep doing the old system? What if enough of us decided to change the rules of the game and throw out the limitations so that we can make life work for all of us? If we exchange to, it's all right for you to have every bit as much as me, including equal power, then all the energy and resources being spent trying to perpetuate our economic and political caste systems could be used to enable every one of us on this planet to live very abundantly. And I'm not talking only material wealth, but also in terms of addressing and healing the isolation and alienation that most people feel to some degree. In Chinese medicine, illness is the concentration of our, of our or lack of energy in one place. Too much wealth concentrated in a too few hands and not enough in the hand, others creates an economic illness through the lack of flow. In our everyone-for-themselves world, the wealth of the planet has now been concentrated in the hands of so few, while millions starve and billions live in poverty, that our planet is indeed ill in spirit as well as ecology. 
There is a new movement happening in this country right now where some people are attempting to bring more balance into their lives by trading off spent time pursuing income for time to be more nurturing towards themselves. While a 1995 nationwide poll commissioned by the Merck Family Fund found that 82% of the respondents agreed that, quote, most of us buy and consume far more than we need, it's wasteful. Hold on just a second. I'm going to have to pause the show for just a moment. I am very sorry about that, folks, just an emergency, but we're good now. <laughs> anyway, um, where was I? Oh, yes, there is a new movement happening in this country right now where some people are attempting to bring more balance into their lives by trading off time spent pursuing income for time to be more nurturing towards themselves. Well, a 1995 nationwide poll commissioned by the Merck Family Fund found that 82% of the respondents agreed that most of us buy and consume far more than we need. It's wasteful. 28% are doing something about it by cutting down on their consumption to create more time for themselves, me included. Of those, 90% are satisfied with the results. This trend, called the voluntary simplicity movement, is growing so rapidly that it is becoming recognized as a movement. The Washington Post reported on January 9, 1996 that, quote, this voluntary, this voluntary simplicity movement is a grassroots reaction to the fractured American dream, some experts say that the turn towards a simplified lifestyle nationwide is starting to reach proportions that foretell a fundamental shift in American society and its consumer culture, end quote. Joe Dominguez, a former Wall Street broker, and Vicki Robin in their book, Your Money or Your Life, took it a step further. They outline a way to basically earn enough to invest and then live cooperatively in small units very cheaply off the income from the investments. Their book is aptly named as they have reclaimed their lives by not buying into the old system and now help others to do the same. While the simplicity movement is certainly a step in the right direction in terms of people leading fuller, more balanced lives and alleviating some of the pressure on nature through reduced consumption, it is still not the revolution that is needed to rescue the entire planet. These people have admirably chosen to make a small difference, but the system as a whole needs to be changed to effectively rescue the planet from the monumental challenges that we face. As an example of how a, large, how a larger group of people can share and work together for the highest good of all, the story of Mondragon region in the, um, sorry, of the Mondragon region in the Basque region of Spain comes to mind. This difficult area to live in was devastated by the Spanish Civil War and years of subsequent government persecution under Franco. Out of the ruins, Don Jose Maria Arismendiantia a Catholic priest who rejected laissez-faire capitalism and the state collectivism of Karl Marx guided five professional men in the village of Mondragon into starting their own manufacturing firm. They organized their firm as a cooperative in which the highest paid worker never earned more than three times than the lowest paid workers earned, and where all workers owned one share of the co-op, earned an equal share of the profits, and could elect and be elected to the board of directors. This income spread is a bit different than our system, where the average CEO in 1995 made 187 times the wage of the average factory worker, which was an increase from 1960 when the spread was 41 to 1. The cooperative started in 1956 in the village of Mondragon, manufacturing two products with 24 workers. By 1959, they had jobs for 100 people. 
Their firm was modeled after the successful 1844 Rock, uh, Rochdale Cooperative in England, which flourished until it opened itself to more capital participants who outvoted the original group and took control. Within three years, the Rochdale Company then became an ordinary capitalist firm. It's funny how all it takes is a little bit of greed to ruin a good thing. Anyway, continuing. However, the Mondragon co-op model proved to be so successful that in less than 30 years, it grew from one cooperative with 25 workers to more than 100 worker cooperatives with 19,500 workers in the region. This was made possible by starting cooperative banks, which mobilized small reserves, enabling the local co-ops to be financed. Because the goal was for everyone to succeed, the banks would meet with prospective new co-ops and help them succeed. They would help find land, supplies, a market for the products, personal training, etc. They would also do feasibility studies, monitor progress, and make up one-third of the co-op's board of directors. The system proved so successful that only three of the 103 worker cooperatives created between 1956 and 1986 were shut down. Compare that with what we know about starting businesses in the everyone-for-themselves paradigm. Since only 20% of our new businesses survive even five years, Mondragon's survival rate of more than 97% across three decades indeed commands attention. Since the cooperatives were worker-owned, the Spanish government would not help with welfare, medical care, etc. No problem. The co-ops created their own co-op social security and health care. They even built a co-op hospital and a co-op university where the students also worked and produced products and owned the co-op. Many of the supermarkets and schools also became cooperatives. Because housing was expensive, they also built co-op housing owned by the tenants. How successful are these worker-owned cooperatives? The productivity of the Mondragon co-op workers is the highest in Spain, higher than the most successful capitalist firms, and the net profit on sales is twice as high as the most profitable capitalist firms. Also, the Basque region never received nor had to depend on outside investment capital to get started or to expand their businesses. The reason for the success of the now prosperous Mondragon region is that the people decided to pool their resources and make it work for everyone. Because managers and workers both knew that they served each other's interests, they could move ahead boldly with an unusual degree of agreement. Also, since they lived in the same villages, no differences were perceived between managers and workers. They also limited the co-ops to 500 members, beyond which they split up and formed a new co-op because they found the co-ops couldn't operate beyond that number. This also helped maintain a family feeling. The now prosperous Mondragon region is an example of people working together for the mutual benefit of all. Had the everyone-for-themselves paradigm been in effect instead, the result probably would have been that a few people gathered most of the money while the majority of the people would still be living in poverty in the region. Let's make life work for all of us. What if we thought of ourselves as one family where the needs of one, whether it be a person, a group, or a country, are the concern of everyone? Granted that to do this, we would have to rein in our egos and sacrifice our selfishness, but what could we gain? What do we really want more of in our lives? Some immediate thoughts are more leisure time, more play, quality time with good friends, opportunities for creative expression, beauty in nature, etc. We'd all probably also opt for less stress, more peace, less pollution, and more healthiness. So again, in thinking of ourselves as one cooperative family, Let's plan how we could all be living very abundantly on all levels. Let's, go, let, um, let's let go of our notions of this everyone-for-themselves social, economic, political system. Let's start from scratch in terms of what we think has to happen to accomplish our goal, 
And let's just say that the environment and all life forms must be taken care of in the best way possible. These are the only requirements. Theoretically, let's also toss out all jobs and then start creating and, if necessary, putting back only those things that support our goal. If we are truly cooperating as one family and we are taking care of all life, we find that we need only about 20% of the current jobs. Only 20% and probably less of the current jobs are essential. The other 80% plus, either there to, uh, plus are either there to protect and perpetuate our everyone-for-themselves economic caste system, or they are what I call nonsense jobs, which are created solely for the sake of providing a person for some, or, or some people with money to survive in the current system. Falling into that category are an incredible number of products that are created, again, solely for people's incomes in our non-cooperative economic model. Just drive down any city street and see how many establishments wouldn't have to be there if the idea was for the system to really work for everyone. As an example of the waste of mind power and creativity in our capitalistic system, I knew of two very bright men who wanted to make big money with as little effort as possible. What they came up with was providing a bunch of cheap products for promotions, thus using manpower and resources for products that will soon take other jobs to haul them to diminishing landfill sites. They are making a lot of money, but it would be nice to put creative work, people to work doing something useful and not needlessly consuming our planet's resources. Many lawyers are very sharp too, but in a cooperative society, few if any of them and the host of the other jobs they support would need to exist. All the jobs involved in the game of making money from money would also be gone. That means the banks, investment houses, and speculators. Dealing with the stock market is really like going to Las Vegas. There are slots and the dealers who take the house share of the money. Meanwhile, some of the players win, some lose, and a bunch of non-essential and nonsense jobs are created. The interest game was also one of our system's really horrible ideas. Who invented this system from hell, which basically enslaves individuals and paralyzes whole countries, while a few money brokers do very well? Jobs were created to make money off of money, and now, as I related earlier, the whole economic system has grown into a monster out of control that really is not working well for most people on the planet. If something needs to be done, we need to have a system where we can just bring our manpower and resources to bear on correcting the problems and just do it. And do it in a way that's in harmony with nature. Then we can start saving the planet. The current economic system is one of consumerism, which aims towards more jobs, more production, a bigger gross national product, and less sustainability. If we can create a system that will work for all of us while also eliminating those 80 plus percent of the jobs and the nonsense and unessential products and their accompanying manufacturing plants, storage facilities, and stores, then we could cut way back on our work week hours, do more leisure and creative activities, have more time communing with the planet, I'm sorry, communing with nature, and use the manpower to start restoring the planet. We could also use that manpower to start creating a better lifestyle for all of us. Again, there are enough resources and manpower for every being on the planet to live abundantly. Not providing services in a good living environment for all life because there is not enough money is an illusion based on our lack of cooperation and creativity. But what is not an illusion is our consumerist society is that the damage done to our environment has become the major issue of our time. Adding to this, our skyrocketing world population coupled with our rapidly decreasing ability to produce food with our ecological damage means that the quality of life in our everyone-for-themselves economic system will continue to decline. 
In fact, a Cornell University team concluded in a 1994 study that the world can support only 2 billion people with the standard of living now enjoyed by the industrialized nations. We are at almost 6 billion now with 8 billion forecasted for the year 2019. The National Resources Defense Council said that the 55 million people that will be born in the industrialized countries during the 1990s will pollute the planet more than 895 million born in third world countries. Remember that the World Watch Institute reported that, quote, as a result of our population size, consumption patterns, and the technology choices, we have surpassed the planet's carrying capacity, end quote. That is right now. With our declining environment and a couple of billion more people, the situation will become much worse unless we choose to do something drastically different. Yet amazingly, the multinationals are pushing for globalization to open up new markets. This is really crazy because it will only hasten the environmental decline of the planet. The physicist ecologist Vandana Shiva excellently discussed this concept. Quote, development to me is a word that is basically basically has extremely benign beginnings in the biological domain where a seed of the oak tree develops into the oak tree. It's something built into the seed. It's something built into the structure of self-evolution and self-organization. Development really comes from that biological sphere. A child develops into a grown-up, stays himself or herself, it becomes different. And that capacity of intergenerated evolution is where the word development really began. But the way it came out of the World Bank, and it did come out of the World Bank, Development became not internally generated, but externally imposed. Development was not something that happens with your resources, your abilities, the abilities of a society, an organism, a person. Development becomes that for which you have, take, you have to take loans and credits and get indebted and get enslaved, just the opposite of what development should really be. The narrow concept of development, and not just the narrow concept, the perverse concept of development, is that, has, that it has guided the relationships between the North and South over the last five decades is definitely anti-ecological. It's anti-ecological because it tries to globalize a pattern of production and consumption that is globally impossible. It tries to universalize the consumption of materials at the scales in which the affluent industrialized West does. We know that 20% of that tiny population of the West consumes 80% of the planet's resources. So if the development project really had to be achieved, it would need literally five planets to meet its objectives. And it is therefore against the very, that very logic, ecological logic of this planet's resources. We don't have five planets. We just have one. Maldevelopment is basically a development paradigm that destroys. It does not build. Maldevelopment is development that does not build on people's capacities. It does not build on limits which ecosystems put on human activity. It disrupts cultures. It violates ecological boundaries, and it just imposes a very, very narrow model of what a preferred human existence is on the entire world. In fact, when development started, and it started absolutely around 1948, where the rest of the world of the third, the rest of the world of the third world, which had been left poor because of colonization, was declared underdeveloped, suddenly we were underdeveloped. And development was a yardstick in which, only the, which the only measures were how much paper you can consume and how much cement you can consume and how many chemicals you can consume, how much petrol and fossil fuel you can consume. Now, quite clearly, subsistence, subsistence um, societies did not consume any of that. They were not involved in the ravaging of the planet. And maldevelopment basically sucked them in with loans from the World Bank and bilateral aid. 
and made them feel that unless they could shift from organic fertilizer into chemical fertilizer, they were underdeveloped. Unless they could shift from the bullet carts to tractors, they were underdeveloped. Unless they could shift from the hundreds of diverse housing materials that are used across the world according to what is available, what is the climate? How will people protect themselves and give themselves shelter? That diversity of housing was devastated by concrete and steel. That's the end of the quote. Indeed, we can have an abundant lifestyle for all the billions of people on the planet, but this cannot be achieved in an everyone-for-themselves paradigm based on the God of profit. It can only be done when we create a model where we can make the world work for all the people, and this means equitably sharing, conserving, and renewing resources. It also requires having the consciousness where we care to act for the highest good of all. Don't mess with Mother Nature. We're now finding out what happened to earlier societies that prospered and grew and then mysteriously abandoned their civilizations. With their farming practices, along with their need for lumber, many cultures from Mesopotamia to the great pre-Columbian cultures of Central America ruined their environment to the point where it could no longer support them. Eerily, we are now repeating this past mistake, only now it's on a worldwide scale. And, unlike previous civilizations, there is no new land to migrate to. When history looks back on us 50 years from now, the question will be asked, why didn't people of the 20th century see what they were doing and change it? This was madness. We are now near the end of the line in our current way of relating to with our environment. Those who don't believe that are still clinging to the attitude of subduing the environment to serve mankind's needs. In his book, The Green Lifestyle Handbook, Jeremy Rifkin described environmental relationships as being, quote, similar to personal relationships by attempting to subdue nature, by refusing to accept on its own terms by manipulating it to serve expedient short-term material ends, we have made our long-term relationship with the environment less secure and now face the prospect of a wholesale depreciation of the life-supporting processes of the planet, end quote. To take care of ourselves and all life, we need to move into sustainability, which means a way of living on this earth so that each generation passes on the earth's natural resources intact to its children. We are facing an emergency and must make decisions that will not only be for our highest good today, but also for the highest good for generations to come. While changing the way we live in order to preserve ourselves and our planet may be a big challenge, it can also be accomplished with a workable plan. I call that plan the next evolution, making the planet work for everyone. And I'll get into the details of that plan in the next chapter which we're probably going to be getting into into the next show because that was a half hour of reading and we're ready to bring back our panelists and hopefully some callers if anybody's going to stop being chicken. That means you, listeners. <laughs> In any case, um, Jack, I'm going to bring you on. Do uh, you have any comments about what we just read? Um, well, I think for anybody, there are so many people who've been thinking this same way. And, and looking at the world differently than how we're being taught. So there's a lot of us out there, and, and there is a solution. And uh, in Chapter 4, the next chapter, it describes that solution that was laid out by the Community Planet Foundation. So although it sounds like doom and gloom so far that we've been reading, it's setting it up for a different consciousness to come in, that consciousness of let's choose to make it work for everyone. And so despite uh, what it sounds like, and this book was written a few years ago, so some of these statistics are 
are much, much worse for the planet than, than they were when I wrote the book. Uh, and despite that, uh, I'm very excited about the present time that we're in because it's, it's a catalyst for, for people realizing like, hey, it's not working anymore. We've got to do something very different. And so I'm, I'm actually excited about these times that we're in, not at all into a fear place about what's happening, but, but very excited because people are looking for something different. That's right. I definitely agree. Now, Doug, do you have any comments so far? Uh, it's hard to analyze 30 minutes of reading. Uh, <laughs> And and remember what you said 27 minutes ago. Um, I'd have to say, I'll, I'll echo what Jack was saying in brief, that with everything that is going on right now, from the BP oil catastrophe, all of the information that is coming out about the completely ignorant methods by which they just ignored practices, uh, that should have been implemented to to maintain that facility, uh, how it's starting to become painfully obvious, and people are noticing it. I mean, you see the backlash by the public against oil in general is pretty strong, that it is profit over people. It is profit over planet. It is profit over everything. And I think that's really genuinely starting to piss people off um, in a way that was never possible before because – uh, 20 years ago, the Internet did not exist in such a fashion to wit all kinds of information could be made public on a moment's notice. Now, granted, you've got to have a pretty good filter to get past the BS that is also on the Internet, but there are enough credible sources from enough different locations to where you can start piecing the puzzle together relatively easy if you're even half bright, uh, and that's giving a lot of credit to the average person. But, you know, I try. And when you start putting all the pieces together, it really makes sense that, you know, the, the, the system is broken and people are seeing it. They're seeing bailouts of banks that actually started the problem. They're seeing larger and larger government, which is completely the wrong way. That's why I laugh when boneheads say that we're the new world order. It's like, Last I checked, they're for global government and we're for no government. Not really anarchy, but no federal or state government anyway. Basically localized systems governing themselves city by city. So, um, you know, it's, it, correlations aren't, don't, don't even come close to compare accurately. So, yeah, it's, this is a very interesting time. I mean, I, I don't like to see all the negatives that are causing this to happen, but, you know, such is the nature with, with, modern society unless the toilet explodes nobody cares if it's leaking a little bit and so um you know it's just it's it's a wake-up call and better now than never um i wanted to welcome eric to the call uh he asked to be added um the panelist here and i, I want to comment a little bit on, on what you've been saying doug um and it, you're definitely right uh and, and one of the things that comes up that I, this is a, and one of my opinion is actually one of the more fascinating parts of this chapter was when I was reading about the cooperatives, because I've been thinking about that a lot lately. I've actually been communicating with a couple of libertarian friends of mine, and 
you know, they've been discussing that, you know, the reason why the libertarians don't need to be afraid of us is because we don't believe in any form of coercion. So why don't we just get together and make these little communities? And, you know, as long as we're not forcing them to give us their resources and they're not forcing us to, you know, give them money, then, you know, there's no reason we need to oppose one another as long as we care about mankind. Now, essentially, though, what came out of those conversations, though, with these discussions about things like cooperatives, and the funny thing is, is that I remember from having Brian Moore, the Socialist Party candidate from 2008 for president, uh, on my show, he talked about uh, kind of the United States being governed as a cooperative in the very same fashion. You have democracy, uh, equal shares for everybody. The, uh, the, all of the production facilities are nationalized, and it's just made part of, you know, like, part of the country itself. And I'm not saying we should do that because it's kind of, if you make it that way and it's all law, then there's too much coercion involved. But one of the things that comes out of all that, though, is that um, one of the, you know, and I remember doing some studying about this, is that the productivity in cooperatives is so much higher than, than that out of a capitalist, you know, like business. And that's proven. And, and the reason for that is that, you know, you're part of it. I think it all kind of comes down to that one moment in Office Space. I don't know if you, if you gentlemen all watched that movie Office Space. <laughs> I you love know, it. Where, where he's talking to those efficiency oh, yeah. <laughs> He's talking to those efficiency experts, and, you know, you're thinking, oh, man, he's so going to get fired. And, you know, but he pointed out he was like, you know, because he had that uh, – I forgot what happened. He had some kind of brain injury or something that made him just, you know, have no inner monologue. He just told the truth all the time. So basically what he said was, well, to be honest with you, what's my motivation? I mean, I only do about 15 minutes of actual work a day. I spend the entire day trying to do as little as I can possibly get away with because I despise my bosses. You know, and I have like five or six bosses and they're all telling me to do different things and they all want me to get everything done that they would need done for their own needs, you know, at the end of the day, I just don't care about them, and I go out of my way to avoid them. You know, he was just, you know, like, once again, there was a satire to it, but he was being honest. Most workers really think that way, and that's because the more your boss yells at you, the less you feel really inclined to do anything. So unless he's sitting there watching you like the KGB, you know, there's no way he's going to know, you know, that, that you're being efficient all the time. You know, and that's one of the things actually that recently came up. I was watching this video series about something called left libertarianism which reminds me a lot of anarcho-syndicalism. Um, basically, you know, they talk about that, you know, there was this guy, I, I'm forgetting his name, but he basically developed scientific management. And it just amounted to, this is the means by which you manipulate your workers to, you know, give you the maximum possible productivity for the least amount of money. Um, and when, when I saw this, it just it keeps bringing me back to all the various ways that, things are engineered that you're not aware of. And people talk about social engineering. They think that it doesn't exist or, you know, that Jock made up that term. And they don't think about the fact that every aspect of our society as it is now is engineered in that way right now. You know, and you don't think about that somebody else is pulling the strings in that situation and creating that situation for yourself. You also don't think about going to work as slavery. You don't think about it as submission because, you know, and it is, because it's not, it, it only is, mind you, in a capitalist, every, every man for himself system, because you're working inevitably to make someone else better off than you and all of the rest of your coworkers. But when you're part of a business, when it's your business, and when you can see immediately, because that's the other thing he pointed out in office space, 
I could bust my butt trying to get a few extra units out for the company, but I don't see anything of it. But when it's your business and you're part of it and you're part of the team and you can see your efforts turn immediately into higher profit, not just for you, but for everybody on your team, that inevitably is going to give you more motivation to actually work. Now, Eric, since you're new to the show, um, do you have any comments so far? Yeah, I would, I would just like to say, uh, I would just a little advice, I'd stay away from the capitalist thing because it's the same exact thing you find here in so-called communist or socialist, whatever it's supposed to be, China. I mean, it, it's the same game. It's the same exact thing you find in offices. Um, and I've been here for a long time and have lots of experience seeing it, and it's the same exact thing. I mean, you know, most people sit in the office and they're playing games, and then the big boss, comes, they look busy. And, you know, same like office space. It's the exact scenario. Well, this is so why I, would say, you know, I wouldn't say it's capitalist. I'd say it's, you know, like Jack says, it's this every, you know, EFT system, the monetary world we live in. Well, no, and I'm, and I'm not saying that the same problems are not witnessed in, you know, other versions of socialism or communism, for sure. That's we often run into that problem, actually, is that people immediately assume that we're advocating communism and socialism. But as Jack points out, when, when you're talking about a difference in work, in a communist country, in theory, they're supposed to show up and tell you to work, and if you don't, then there's still a coercion to it. That's, once again, not going to motivate you. But if yeah. you see your effort manifest immediately into actual direct you know, support for you, and when you're working in a team that feels more like a family rather than just a coworker situation, then helping everybody in your team helps you. That's the aspect that I think people forget about. But we terrify the libertarians when we say things about, you know, private property being an old idea that we don't need to get rid of because they're scared we're going to take from them. They don't mm -hmm. understand that what's good for you is also what's good for the group that you happen to be part of. And they think that they can escape that, but the world is getting smaller every day. And the more, you know, the more population we get, the more that's going to continue. Now, um, Jack, uh, Jack, did you have any further comments so far? Oh, just Eric has reminded me that later in the book I – I say that uh, capitalism, socialism, communism, they're all much more alike than they are different because as they're practiced, they're all centralized power-based systems. And what we're describing in the next evolution in the Community Planet Foundation is returning that decision-making to the people at the local level and not only doing it that way, but also through using consensus decision-making, returning the power for the decisions back into the hands of each and every person at the local level. And that is very, very different than what's being practiced in the world. Because a lot of people, when they hear about you know, the group ownership of, of land and the group ownership of buildings and, and this uh, decision-making at the local level, they think, oh, that's, that's like socialism and that's like communism, and, you know, which is equated with the big evils. And it's like, no, it's, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's giving people the power back at the local level and individually, and that's what we need to do. 
Oh, and I agree with you. And I think one of the reasons I brought up, you know, socialism um, and also communism also from the other side of it is that in many cases, what ended up happening in practice is not generally what the founders of any of these systems really had in mind. You know, Ludwig von Mises probably had not considered corporatism. He probably had not considered fractional reserve banking. Um, he had probably not considered anybody manipulating the market in the way that it's being done. He also probably wouldn't have considered the power of things like advertising now. Um, and then you take like, you know, Marx, for example, the, the, the dictatorship of the proletariat never really took place in Russia. It was just kind of a switch over to, well, we're going to say that you're going to have that. But in reality, the, the nomenclature, which I hope I'm pronouncing correctly, is basically like the Russian word for neoconservative, at least that's what they remind me of, was the elite that actually runs everything and the whole time is feeding you this idea that you too can someday be as great as we are, the same crap that, you know, some capitalists are fed. You know, and then when we talk about giving the power back to the people, that's actually what Brian Moore in, in his Socialist Party advocated was uh, direct democratic control, you know, in the hands of the people. And when you think about it, you know, consensus, I think there, there's an aspect that's, that's missing in direct democracy that I think consensus is superior on. Because in direct democracy, you can just vote and you don't really care if everybody doesn't agree with you. You know, you're still voting and if you come out ahead, you may not, you know, then you may just be content to just leave it that way. Whereas consensus thinking, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, is we have to keep doing this until everybody gets it. Is that correct? Well, it's, it's also that in, if consensus is really being done properly and the people have been trained and screened to hold that consciousness of the highest good and to know how to work consensus, we get to hear all the voices because so often in decision-making, it's the loudest voices. It's the people who are more, most forceful, who put their ideas out there and then get other people to go along with their ideas. And sometimes it's the people who are not speaking up at all, but people who have to be asked, well, how do you see this? For them to have a safe enough space to be able to elucidate a, a way of looking at the situation that can, in fact, be built on by others that puts it, you know, exponentially, that makes an exponentially better decision than what people had been thinking up to that point. And that's one of the things that's wrong with the democratic system is it's the loudest voices and, and not using the creativity that can be accessed through tapping the innate wisdom of every single person that's involved. You know, and, and another major part of that is when everybody has an equal respect for one another and, in fact, yearns to hear everybody's opinions equally. Um, in my own leadership style um, in the hobby that I'm part of, it's funny, actually, how many people will become offended when you do this because it frightens them. In my group, uh, we're actually very efficient at what we do in our reenactment group. And I go out of my way to make sure that every single person in the group gets to speak if they started to speak earlier, I store that in my mind and I make sure that we come back to that person to hear that information. And the funny thing is, is that, you know, that actually intimidated groups that didn't operate like that. Other groups would look at our groups and they would resent us because we weren't practicing that, you know, I'm the alpha, you listen to me kind of nonsense. And the funny thing is because we had that consensus, we were so much more efficient 
and targeted on board, it actually made some of these people insecure about the, the, the failings of their own groups. And rather than blaming it, you know, really self, I want to say being self-introspective about why we were doing better, instead, because we weren't enforcing, that's the other aspect that these people depend on, is the notion that some people are popular and some people are not. In my group, there was none of that. And in their groups, there's all these people vying and competing for, you know, uh, pack leadership and pecking order. So they're screwing each other over the whole time. And we don't do that. So our group was so much better at accomplishing what it is that we needed to do that it act, you know, that they, they found it threatening. <laughs> and I'm not saying that that's a reason we shouldn't do consensus by any means. That means we absolutely should. The fact that we're making people who continue to cling to these stupid ideals um, intimidated means that we're doing something right. Do you follow what I was saying, Jack? Yes, it, it sounds, Neil, like I've almost found another uh, consensus facilitator. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, and that's that's actually one of the funny things about it was that it, it it they all got the impression that I was the guy, so they would try to you know isolate me and pull me away from the group. And then what they found when they did that was the group just went on doing exactly what it was doing, regardless of my input. And so, but yeah, I, I think I heard um, Doug's voice. Were you going to say something? Um. Yeah, I wanted to go back. I didn't want to interrupt the flow of the conversation. It was going, so I'm going to backtrack a small amount about the be careful about using capitalism as its own identity. Uh, that's one of the key things that I make a strong point in right at the beginning of Awakening was that it's the monetary system, the price system, that's the problem. But the the social construct or the economic construct under which it was created is irrelevant. Socialism, communism, in today's world, every ism still uses money, still has markets, still has commercials and companies and power grabs and monopolies and all these other things. So all of that means absolutely nothing. And uh, one of the things you were talking about was uh, about how I'm sure the leaders didn't, uh, the, the creators of all these isms of the past didn't, couldn't foresee how it would be used, abused, twisted, or, or whatnot, you know, given the human element that was involved and the still built-in stratification, even in communism and socialism, there's still a kind of a built-in power base uh, to make decisions because they didn't have the technology to incorporate the data so that computers could help facilitate that decision-making, um, whereas we have that now, which is what separates us from everybody else. But something I like to say is, you know, you want to yell communism sucks and you want to yell socialism sucks and all these historical contexts of these wars and, and everything and these violent people and, and who like Hitler and Mao and Stalin and all this who killed millions of people and all this stuff. I said, you're right. Those were bastards. A game of freeze tag would suck if you were playing with Charles Manson. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not the system that's the problem. It's those who implement the system or those who are running the game that was the problem. I'm, I don't blame communism. I blame the people who ran it, who were the brutal, evil, psychotic dictators who wanted to kill people who didn't agree with them. There is a huge difference between a social ideology, ideology and the psychotic schmoo that implements it. I absolutely agree with you, and I, I want to comment really quickly, and then Eric wants to go next. Um, 
was that it, one of the things that I think happens with me is because I came from a capitalist background and I see so many friends of mine still trapped in that, that ideological thinking. Um, I think that might between that and the fact that as Peter pointed out in addendum, capitalism is the most uh, prevalent system right now. People have pretty much given up on communism and socialism. Um, I think that's one of the reasons I end up picking on it more than the other, more than the other isms. Um, but uh, in addition to that though, um, you know, to further comment on what you were saying, um, I think that people don't recognize that, you know, the one, this is another thing that I bring up to them is that when you talk to the average person, they have the Stalins and the Hitlers and the Lenins, but they don't think about the fact that that happens in capitalism too. You have the Dick Cheney's, the Donald Rumsfeld's, you know, Dick Cheney and his, you know, and his Halliburton company and Donald Rumsfeld being a Monsanto, you know, uh, corporate executive, uh, Hillary Clinton and Walmart, you know, it's, it, these, it, it happens because the, the major fundamental difference, because when we say that the Venus Project is not like any of these other systems, what we're really talking about is the core values have to change first before you're building anything. When the Bolsheviks tried to, you know, initiate communism, they hadn't really dealt with all of the social problems that would have been necessary to make communism functional. You know, and when the Founding Fathers thought that, you know, in theory, everybody would always want to be honorable and all of that and their, their social practices, well, that, that just didn't last. You know, um, and so anyway, um, Eric, you, I know you had comments about some of the things you've already talked about. Please go ahead and, you know, take the conversation back and forth. We're all pretty smart in this call. All right. Thanks, Neil. Um, yeah, just to go back, I wanted to make one. The reason I mentioned that the similarity in China was because, you know, there's, there's this perception, especially in the West, that, oh, you know, the Asians or the Chinese are such hard workers and they're so smart. But, you know, it's, it's really such a fallacy. And, it, you know, it serves probably two purposes, which we could probably guess, you know, this us versus them kind of thing, jealousy and, you know, separation. But, you know, I mean, like I said, it, it's, it's this perception is, it, it, it's a fallacy. It's the same exact, that's all I wanted to point out here. Um, <clears throat> And you're absolutely right about the isms and uh, I don't know. I would capital. Is, is it more a question of capitalism or consumer marketingism or something? It's. I mean, to me, I live here in China and I've seen such amazing change in six years. And it's very reminiscent of. Um, and I'm dating myself here, but 80s America. You know, with, with the obsession with all the European brands and Ferraris and Porsches and. Oh, this, I mean, it's the same exact situation you find here now. Um, anyway, just that, that's the point on that. And as far as consensus, I'd like to maybe see what Jack thinks about this and other people. Um, I have some experience trying to work in this in some, what, when I was involved in groups before I left America in New York. And one thing I always saw as one of the biggest blockades was, you know, this people are fear to really say what they, what they really feel and what they're thinking because they're afraid of not being politically correct. Um, and, I, and I feel that, you know, a lot of people say tolerance. I, I don't think tolerance is the, is the word that people need. We need acknowledgement and acceptance of, of, of what people are feeling, whether you agree with it or, or not. So in my opinion, for consensus, to really work, one of the key factors is that people have to be trusted 
to say what they're feeling, regardless of what people are going to think of them. Before you answer, that's Jack, about all. Before, I'm sorry. Yeah, that's no, no, about that's all. Totally fine. Uh, before you answer, Jack, I just want to tell my listeners we're down to the last six minutes of the live show. Um, I imagine we can finish this conversation since it seems to really be getting really engaged now, unless anybody here is on a time constraint. Um, but I am. Okay, but that's but okay. I'll, I'll just I'm not talking about question. another hour or anything. I was just saying let's let's wrap up our ideas here. Um, and I don't know that we'll be able to do that in five minutes, which is what we have left. So if you're listening to the live show and it cuts off, you'll still be able to hear the rest of this conversation on the archive. Another thing I wanted to mention to the listeners, because I don't think that they realize this, but uh, you're speaking about China from the perspective of somebody who lives in China. Um, <laughs> and I don't think that was readily apparent to them. And that's one of the reasons that what you said about you know, Chinese people being more hardworking and all that actually has a lot of credence. And it reminds me a lot, actually, of what my friend Rafael, and I've, I've told this story a billion times, so I'm not going to retell it, but my friend Rafael in Mexico said about the Mexicans when he said that there's just as many lazy people in Mexico as anywhere else. They're just taking advantage of an economic situation that isn't more productive or, you know, it's not due to any kind of superior work on the part of the people in question. It's due to the fact that their situation is so much more superior as far as these are people that are easier to take advantage of. That's the only, that's exactly what it means at the end of the day. It has nothing to do with anything else. Now, before we get off anything else, I want Jack, go ahead and comment on um, what he was suggesting about consensus and people not being honest about um, how they really feel. I, that's one of my pet peeve issues, too. Well, in order to really work consen consensus effectively, people really have to have the training to do that. We do a 36 to 40 hour consensus training, and the key is and as Eric was uh, was alluding to, is that is to create a safe space for everybody to communicate. And when that's not happening, when we sense something, we stop and do a safety check in the group to see where people are. And if there are people who are not feeling safe, that's going to be the major reason why consensus can start to break down. So we just stop and address that, not the issue that's being discussed, but addressing the safety, because the safety issue is actually more important than whatever the issue is that we're trying to make a consensus decision about. And I could, I could cite numerous examples of, of why that's so. But I also uh, wanted to say that in this discussion about these systems, the thing that we hardly ever talk about is, uh, is that I say that in, in order to really transform society, we need not only the form of the highest good, which resource-based economy is, is part of that, and, and cooperative living, as such as we've described in the next evolution, is part of that, but we also need to hold that consciousness of the highest good. And a lot of what's involved with that is that four-letter word love and loving. And we need to realize that we are all one, that we can include everybody as and and to come from that loving place inside us. And that's such a key, and it's rarely ever talked about in terms of what needs to happen on the planet and it's absolutely part of what needs to happen on this planet is we need more loving in this world 
and we've built it into the description of how we would go about uh, living in community in a way that could transform the planet. Excellent. Um, excellent conversation. Um, we're now down to the last 60 seconds of the live show. I believe it will allow us to go past two hours. I may be wrong. Um, if not, then, um, you know, it's been great having you guys on. Um, and I look forward to Can further I say one quick this. thing? Go ahead, Doug. All right, I just want to say, and I want to echo what Eric was saying, we have become the United States of the offended, emotional <laughs> pansies who cannot possibly handle debating anyone with an opposing view because it might hurt them in some emotional context. We've mm -hmm. lost our spine when it comes to intellectual debate, and it's a bunch of bullcrap. And so I totally agree that people need to stiffen up and come with facts and data when they debate and not worry about being proven wrong and just accept what is right. You know, and even more than that, Doug, they just need to not be insecure in the event that they're wrong. You know, okay, so you're wrong. Big deal. Well, I, we'll see if we continue. I, I think it's, I mean, that's how I learn. We have to, have a, to become a society of, of individuals and people as a whole that wants to be proven wrong. And to be offended, I personally enjoy it. Yes, my first reaction may be anger and defense, but once I start thinking about it, okay, then it, that's how we learn. So I don't know where we got away from this understanding. Because we don't teach science as the, the methodologies of science. This is why I like the Venus Project so much. We don't teach people the methodologies of science as it applies to every other part of their life as well. It's as if science is this special island of thought and geniuses and, and all this other stuff, and they completely forget about the methodology that developed that phone or developed the computer or developed that space shuttle. Do you think those things just happened because everybody was out for themselves? No. Those things happened because groups of people came together, knocked heads, and figured out all of the ways not to do something, which left them the one way to do it. That yeah, is how science and engineering works. That's one of the things that I learned when I was in the Libertarian Party, because there were so many anarchists there, and I've talked about this more than once, but when, you know, when I was thinking to myself why Ron Paul left the Libertarian Party, I figured it out when I was at the Libertarian National Convention, because there were so many people there obsessed with individualism to the point that they couldn't accomplish anything that required more than a couple huh. of people, it, because they couldn't stop fighting each other for five minutes, and it's the reason that they never have any solid leadership, because if anybody starts to you know, become a solid leader, well, then they have to tear them down for being authoritarian. You get into so many yeah, stupid man. ego wars, and it's just ridiculous. It's like, yeah, if somebody's being a despot, then go after them. But just because somebody might not hold the same view as you does not mean they're attacking you. You know, it's actually, it's funny that you brought that up, Doug, because I just dealt with that myself not long ago. Because one of the things that I run into all the time is that there are a lot of people out there who can't handle talking to somebody who's not insecure. You know, it's, and they want you to tone yourself down so that they can feel secure. Even if they're totally right. wrong, you know, no matter what it is, they, you know, and, if, and if, you, if you stick to your guns about something and ask them to actually have you know, uh, actual evidence for their point, then they get more and more offended. It's like, in order to oh. be polite, I have to just go ahead and let you be right, even though you're not, and then that somehow will make everybody more comfortable. 
Right, exactly. The only way to appease them is to acquiesce, which is absolutely retarded, especially when they come up with accusations and whatnot that have no basis, and they can't even prove it. When I start throwing out links to researchers and research papers and lecturers by prominent scientists in a field that I'm discussing, the only thing they ever come back with is insults and more accusations, at which point I've decided to stop talking. I, I get too emotional. I want to reach through the screen and punch him dead in the face. But, you know, that, that's, you know, I can't, and so I'm getting to the point now where I'm teaching myself restraint, and the moment they go down that path, boop, I'm done, and I'm just, I stop talking to them all together. You know, it's a terrible social disease that is that people can't, you know, just handle that. I mean, I remember... Uh, not long ago, um, I'm not going to mention the name. Somebody's because keyboard. Sorry. Yeah, I, I do hear somebody's keyboard, too. Um, it's been mute. Not, while ago, I'm, uh, not long ago, I'm not going to mention the name, but during a bit of a confrontation I was having with fellow members of the movement over moderation issues, um, one of the prominent members of the Zeitgeist movement said that they had gotten it into their head that I did not respect them at all. And the reason why was because every time they had come up with a solution for moderation issues, I had disagreed with them. And I, I just kind of blinked. I was like, wait, what? That, that's disrespecting you? You know, I, I don't understand. I, I, just, I just didn't think you were right about it. That's all. You know, and, but they, they had gotten it into their head that that was, that, that was me trying to be mean to them. And, um, well, this, and then, is the old, this is the old value system, which we all fall into the trap of. I mean, what is respect? by the way. I mean, define what constitutes respect. I mean, there's a political again. Right. People think they are entitled to respect right off the bat. And I have been raised and will continually firmly believe that respect is earned, not given. You receive respect by the actions that you have, the personality that you maintain, and the way that you deal with people. But, it, but that is something we can eventually grow out of, too. Once everybody recognizes, you know, that actually once everybody is capable of achieving the excellence that they're capable of, then everybody will also be equally, you know, worthy of respect. The reason we run into so many problems with the diseased world that we live in is that in many cases there are people who are just so undeveloped and it's difficult to respect them. Even though they're humans, we should. It's a question of, you know, if me giving this person extra credence is actually going to be counterproductive to what it is we're trying to achieve... Now, go ahead, Eric, and then I'd like to hear some more from Jack. Yeah, I, I think it's more, personally, I think it's more of a question of we just need to acknowledge people. Um, I mean, there's almost not words that we, because our, our whole language system has been screwed up because of all this stuff. So, I mean, like I said, respect. Well, what constitutes respect? I, I like to just acknowledge people and try to work with it. I don't know. Respect. What constitutes, that's my question. What constitutes respect? So I think it's we need to acknowledge and we need to work around these things. We don't need to accept. We don't even need to tolerate everything, in my opinion. We need to acknowledge it and work with it. Yep, I absolutely agree. Now, Jack, did you have something further? Well, you know, Barbara Marks Hubbard, who lives around the corner from me, in my book I describe two of the major problems on the planet as being isolation and alienation. And she said it more succinctly in, in one word, that the major problem on the planet that we're facing right now is, in a word, separation. The idea is hmm. not only separation between ourselves and nature, between ourselves and other people, but also separation 
within ourselves and really connecting with ourselves. In these scenarios that we're talking about right now with respect, with being listened to, with trusting in in the community that we're that I that we've been describing that is described in the next evolution is we're screening people for the that consciousness of the highest good. And these people are coming in there committed to creating a world that's going to work for everyone. And so they're not going to hold, be holding these consciousness of me versus you or this person is not worthy of respect or whatever, but these people are going to be holding that consciousness. And it's not about going to be about everybody taking the responsibility to be heard and by the group. It's a group's responsibility. Sure, it's everyone's individual responsibility, but it's also the group's responsibility to draw out that wisdom from everyone because some people need to grow into that place of being uh, being more forthright in their sharing. When we were creating the community planet model, there was a couple of times when one of the more intuitive people in in the group, uh, when we had a description that we really liked, and all she could look, do is look at it and say, "That's not it," because we had to reach consensus on something before we could move on. We'd say, "Well, what do you mean it's not it? What's wrong with that?" And she couldn't tell us. All she knew is that intuitively it was not it. So we put it on hold and for the next week, we'd come back, we'd, we'd hope she'd changed her mind and she would not have changed her mind. And then at that point, we just started like saying, okay, well, we're stuck and, you know, so we might as well just start having fun and we start creating just really crazy ideas and throwing them around. And, and in the process of doing that, somebody would say something that had a thread to it that we would build on and eventually shift into a whole other place in terms of describing what we, what we were trying to describe. And had we not listened to that person who could put out no reason whatsoever for the position, but just the intuitive awareness that what we were working on, that there was something that greater that we could access even though she did not have the information at all and contributed very little to the actual final idea without her being there and intuitively holding us to something greater, we wouldn't have gotten there. So everybody deserves to be listened to, I think. And in terms of respect, my personal attitude is that everybody in the world deserves respect for who they are, whatever they are, whatever they're doing, if we were to be in their shoes, maybe we could look at things somewhat different. I think there's not enough respect in the world, and that's created out of that separation where we're thinking that people are so very different than we are until we understand that we're all one, that we can make this work for, for everyone. You know, that's, that's when we start to heal those things because healing of consciousness has so much to do with what's going on now. And it's very, it's very easy to like, start arguing with, with, with people, but oftentimes the reason why we're doing that has something to do with maybe my relationship with my parents 
or you remind me of of somebody that I knew in my past, so I'm just disagreeing with you just to be just because of of who you are. And I'm not necessarily disagreeing with the issue, although I think I'm disagreeing with the issue. But what I'm really disagreeing with is a part in me that hasn't been healed, and you remind me of that part. You know, that's actually an extremely uh, insightful point. Um, I just want to say really quickly is what you just pointed out is that in many cases, and, I, and I've, you know, it's really tough to tell people this when you're the only person who realizes it in the room, that the problem that they have is actually an insecurity on their part and has nothing to do with the person that they're upset with. And, of course, if you say that, then you just sound arrogant, so that they start, you know, throwing that word at you or pompous, even though you're just trying to tell them the truth. Now, Eric, you were going to go, and then I know Doug wants to say goodbye to the listeners, so go ahead. Well, I, I didn't really have much to say. It's just, yeah, yeah, Jack's absolutely right. I just, you know, like, like Jacques always says, our language has been so perverted, um, and that's all. It's not just English. And, yeah, the respect, it's, you know, I come from an Italian background, so when I hear the <laughs> word respect, <laughs> I think you can uh, take it from there. So, I mean, we really have to understand. That, that's why I just personally, I like to use this word acknowledging somebody. So when you acknowledge them, I mean, to me, that's you're accepting them. You know, you're, you're recognizing them. You're acknowledging them, and you're giving them your love. Because it's not that we don't even, we don't live in a world where there's any acknowledgement. We walk over people. So, I mean, once you acknowledge somebody, I think they're, they're in, to me, this is, just, this is just language, and we're picking we're picking, you know, little bones out of it. But, you know, once you acknowledge somebody, really, that's when you open. I mean, look at New York, for example. How many people can walk by a person laying on the street with shit and piss covered all over from head to toe, starving? I mean, you know, once you acknowledge them, that opens up yourself to, you know, that then inflows the love and the compassion. But we don't have acknowledge. We don't want to acknowledge it. You know, like the blinders. You know, let me let me uh, yeah, but, let, real quick. Uh, let me point something out. You know, what's worse is that people will simply avoid those people and try to pretend they don't exist because instead their heart fills with guilt, you know, and despair. So they just don't want to acknowledge that they're there. Precisely. Now, go so, you know, how are you going to lo- how are we going to have love and how are we going to have compassion if we just live in this you know me 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 like Jack says this you know uh, everybody for themselves world. Go ahead, Doug. Right. Uh, and I'll and I'll part part on just a few statements, and then I have to bid everybody good night. Um, acknowledgement also brings about a notion of responsibility. If you acknowledge the homeless person, then now you have a responsibility, and there are far too many people who are becoming adept at avoiding responsibility, and I think that is a big key social problem is a lack of personal responsibility for social situations. So that's where we run into that acknowledgement issue, I think, why, why somebody can't ignore the homeless guy on the New York street, because if he acknowledges them, now he's responsible or feels a sense of responsibility. Ooh, heaven forbid. Um, when it comes to the thing, acknowledgement, suddenly I just went uber geek in the back of my head because I've seen Avatar about six times. To I see you, and yeah. if you if you watched Avatar, well, their their thing is I see you, which is not it's not a respect thing like they've proven themselves to be respected, and, and that's something I wanted to touch on with Jack is is 
uh, I, I guess we have to define what respect is, and I, and I know you said that a second ago. Um, I think respect is based on the contributions that somebody can bring to the table. You respect their position because, like, somebody would respect me because of my space background. So when I start talking technical, I come from a respectable position. But that doesn't mean we can't automatically be polite, and that's the that's the polite thing is what I think humanity needs to do. We need to be polite to each other, and I think respect is a derivative of your your uh, what you bring to the table. Uh, you're respected for your knowledge. You're respected for your point of view because you have the background to justify that opinion. Something like, for example, I would never speak about oceanography. I don't know anything about oceanography. I wouldn't respect myself on oceanography. But if I start talking about orbital mechanics, you might want to respect me on that one. Right. (laughs) So you see that that's – and that's just definitions, and I guess we'd have to figure out what the definitions are. So acknowledgement, politeness, and then respect, I think, fall into different kind of categories. Well, I think acknowledgement and politeness kind of go together. The politeness of acknowledging somebody's existence and that they, they are a, they can be a contribution. The respect comes to are they a contribution or not, kind of that thing. You know, and being, yeah. it's also important to draw the distinction that being tactful and being polite does not include just saying you're wrong mm-hmm. about something to make somebody else feel better about themselves. <laughs> right, and exactly. Being polite doesn't mean that you have to agree with them. It just means that you are polite. You can still respectfully, or that's kind of a different twist on the word respect, but you can politely disagree and and still disagree, and you can vehemently disagree, but at the end of the day, you should still be able to shake hands and say, well, I don't agree with you, but I'll do everything I can to find data to prove you wrong, and then I'll look at you and say, that's great. I'll find everything I can to prove you wrong, Cool, let's go have a beer. That's why now the that's goal of conversation sh- needs to be finding the truth, not victory. Right. It's about getting the right answer. Now, it doesn't matter who's right. It's just can you provide me the best data set to prove your position over mine? And that's when I get into debates with people, they never do. I always have it. I like, and listen, I like to always say I'm just more – I just like to say the bigger truth. I, you know, I, I try to steer clear of this the truth and I'm right or you're wrong. I, I try to, you know, it's, it's incremental. Like, like we, we all truth kind of know. Moment. Knowledge is, it's being, exactly. So there's bigger truths. I mean, are you, are you a white guy? Are you an American? Are you a North American? Or are you an earthling? What's the bigger truth? Mm-hmm. That's all there is. I mean, okay, you're absolutely right. You're a, you're a Los Angeles, you know, you're a New Yorker. Okay, you're a Northeaster. You're an East Coaster. You're a North American. I mean, so what's the bigger truth? So I always, when people start saying, you're, I'm just like, no, I'm just trying to lead you to a bigger truth because somebody has done it to me, with me. Man, the, mo- the moment to- we meet aliens, <laughs> the moment we meet aliens, we're going to have to go from being a human to just being a sentient being in the cosmos. Right. <laughs> That'll be the bigger truth. <laughs> Let me qualify the, what I meant by the truth was this. Um, more not, it was more of an issue of recognizing that what is, is, and it's independent of we, it's independent of us. The reality of a situation, let's say we're talking about the sky is blue, is it doesn't belong to me because I happen to be arguing the position that the sky is blue. It's just blue. And our goal at the end of the conversation should determine whether, what color the sky is, not which one of us 
is superior, which one of us is more dominant, which one of us is more skilled at talking over the other or attacking the other. This is why I think ad hominem and personal attack are this huge intellectual poisons that just must be purged. I hate it more than anything else that you can do to somebody <laughs> in conversation is to start talking about, well, you're just some fat guy or you're just, you know, you, you come from some low-income background, or you're obviously part of X group or Y group. And not only because it's not even about being offended. It's about the fact that now you've destroyed the quality of the conversation. You know, and now we're going to be talking about whether or not I am fat, whether or not I am from a bad economic background. We're going to be talking about that. But the, the whole point of the conversation is lost, and, and they think that they've won. And maybe in primitive lowbrow types, maybe they have won. But they haven't won in the mind of anybody else. And, in fact, anybody who participates in that is now the loser. And it's hard to get that across to some people because all the way back in school, the solution to dealing with somebody who makes you insecure is to try to make them look like less of a person rather than instead focusing on yourself and improving yourself. Exactly. And on that note, I've got to go to bed. So good night, everybody. I appreciate the conversation. Jack, it was a pleasure meeting you, sir. Eric, it was nice that you could jump in from the other side of the planet for a little while. And, uh, and on that note, I shall bid everybody who's listening a good evening. Good evening, Hello. Doug. Great meeting you, Doug. Make sure, that you check out, make sure you check out Doug's book, Turning Point. You can check it out at lulu.com. Uh, yes, thank you. No problem. Good night, everyone. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it, it's interesting, Jack. Uh, the, the the issue of consensus, and you saying that you know you felt that I was a good person for facilitating consensus based on what I said, is that that just always seemed to be like the most logical recourse was to pool the mental resources of everybody around you. And it, it was interesting to me that so many people voluntarily make their groups in, you know, totally inefficient because instead of being part of a cooperative, it's almost like, you know, it, it's almost like, uh, what would I call it? Social capitalism. It's like I want to have all of the mental power for myself, all of the uh, intellectual value for myself, and I want to have all the credit for myself. And so, therefore, I'm just going to allow this group of people to be inefficient because I would rather have all of that for myself than sharing it with the entire group. Um, Did you follow my analogy? Do you understand what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's got to be tough to deal with. I mean, I imagine people who act like that probably just don't make it out of the screening process. <laughs> yeah. The, those, the people who act like that are not drawn to be in a consensus training in the first place. Right. Those are, okay. Go ahead. However, um, what's, what it's going to take to transform the planet is that people have to see that there's a better life that's available where people are living more abundantly on all levels, healthier, happier, more abundant, more free time, more in tune with nature, more loving, more happiness, and and when people who have the kind of consciousness of separation that is creating these kinds of challenges, when they look at people doing, you know, living more abundantly like that, they're going to be looking at that like, you know, uh, it's worth it for me to change some of my behaviors so I can be a part of this. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to, I'm going to, 
take a look at what I'm doing because I'm working way too hard out here and getting far too little in comparison with these people who are enjoying so much more. I, that's going to be what catalyzes me into some personal growth so I can make some changes. You know, that's, that's another excellent thing that I guess came up in, in my own personal leadership style was when I would run guilds on online games, in many cases you're dealing with there's a lot of people who play online games, not all of them by any means, but some of them are the kind of people who are just really insecure and they can cause all sorts of problems, you know, in trying to make themselves feel secure, particularly at the expense of others. And one of the things that I found that made people a little uncomfortable, that after they got used to it, they preferred it, was, you know, and that's the reason why, like, I log on to the video game Star Wars Galaxies. I mean, I haven't done it recently, but, you know, like, it's been six years or so since I played that game regularly, and my guild is still functioning, still utilizing that consensus attitude, and it's still going strong to this day because of that foundation. And what it really amounted to was that I just, you've got to create an environment where if something's bothering you, then you know that you can just casually speak about it. You know, it, 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 that's the other thing we were talking about is like that kind of came up in that little problem I had earlier that I was mentioning was that, you know, people like she, this person had developed this, in their head problem with me that they thought I had with them. And rather than just openly communicating with me about it calmly and actually resolving the problem, their answer was to start a behind my back campaign about it, which, you know, is so, it's so inefficient. It doesn't solve anything. And at the end, <laughs> it was just something that they had made up in their head. It didn't exist outside of their perception. And because they had never spoken to me about it, they just got more and more and more angry and any time I disagreed with them, it just continued to further their delusion. And it, it just did not, you know, I just, I, I hope that they learned the lesson at the end of the day because it was a rough conversation that night. But uh, overall, though, you know, it just seems, as Doug pointed out, being honest with each other is so critical. We talked about this in the divorce show recently, is that people are not honest with each other about who they are, what they feel, what they like, what they don't like, and then they blame other people around them for not having telepathy enough to figure out that they weren't satisfied. You know, like, like it's their fault, you know, that you weren't honest. That's why in a group of people, whether it be me communicating with myself, me communicating with you, us sitting in a group of people, why it's so important to establish that safety level in the communication. Because out of that safety will come that honest, uh, that, that honest communication. And if there is safety, it will allow me, instead of defending where I'm at, my point of view, my choices, instead of defending that, if I feel a safety when I'm talking with you, then I can explore inside, I can moving to a position of more neutrality and get in touch with like, well, maybe there is something to what Neil was saying. Let me take a look at that. If there's safety there, then I can do that kind of like exploration and, and get like some guidance like, aha, now I see it. Now I make the connection. But if, you're, if I'm perceiving that there's an attack coming from you where I don't feel safe, I'm not doing that kind of exploration. You may be kind of bludgeoning me, and you could even see what's going on with me. But if I don't feel safe enough to explore it with inside myself, 
I'm in a defensive position and I'm not getting to the healing and the better choices that are available to me. Absolutely. And I, I don't think people recognize that. Um, it, it, the only other problem I ever run into is that sometimes people, because maybe they think that they've healed, they'll start trying to diagnose problems in other people that are maybe not necessarily yeah. there. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. And then when you don't go along with it, then, then you're just in denial. You know, it's like they're trying to fix you and you're like, actually, I, I, re I really don't feel that way. Um, <laughs> you know, and you can't get through to them, you know, and if you don't say any, you know, if you don't go along with it, well, then you just have a problem and you're just not letting them intervene. And, you know, once again, they don't recognize that's their insecurity. It's, it's not that you have a problem. You know, and I and I guess it's tough because in many cases there are a lot of people that are just in denial. So it's so hard to, you know, it's it's so hard to really get people to be honest. And you're very right about it being about safety. People need to feel safe around you that they're not going to be punished for speaking out. And um, I, I remember one of the best relationships I've ever had in my life, uh, the girl was very vocal around me in private but in public didn't really talk a lot. And it's not because she didn't have opinions. It's because she was raised in a situation where the people in question were not necessarily very supportive of her having an opinion at all. Right. Kind of an old-fashioned, you know, women are to be seen and not heard kind of family was where she came from. And I, of course, that drives me nuts. I, I can't stand a woman to act like that. And when she got used to that, you know, it was – it was great, and but there is definitely a value to being able to create an environment where everybody feels that there's that it's safe for them to talk about things, and especially in conflict resolution, that's why it's like the the things that I'd have to do to get people over it too were were kind of devious. Like we'd be in a voice chat situation, for example, and they you know somebody would come to me as the guild master of our Star Wars guild, and it, they'd be like, well, I have problem with X person, and I really don't think that they respect me, and you know, so then while the person's not looking, I would just drag the other person into the channel. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's, that's... Yeah, and just let them keep talking. And then initially they're like, why did you do that? And I'm like, um, because... You should have been telling that person. Right. It's just, we're going to talk to this person now. We're going to get this out. And then, of course, I had to be, you know, they had to trust me as a leader enough to really let me moderate that, you know, like... The other guy starts freaking out. He's got to respect me enough when I say, hey, you know, chill out. You know, don't freak out. Let's talk about this. And it's amazing how many times your imagination has created a problem where there really is none. That's, mm -hmm. I learned that in a book called Psycho-Cybernetics, actually, that talks about issues of self-esteem. And you get to a point when you have a low self-esteem, if you hear two people whispering, you immediately assume that they're talking bad about you. And you create this you know, a situation that doesn't exist, and then you allow it to affect your self-image, and even worse, you let it affect your behavior. And in many cases, they're not talking about you at all, you know, but you're so worried that they might be, and then you react accordingly, and it, it just poisons your life. It's so. interesting. I, I did uh, my, my high school um, psychology class presentation on the self-image, and that was my major resource was Psycho-Cybernetics by Maxwell Maltz. <laughs> so it's interesting you should bring that up. Mm -hmm. I, I do want to say something to you, though, with, because it's such a key part of our consensus class is the idea of ownership language because it's 
I think it's an error to say that, uh, for somebody to say, like for instance, for me to say, you make me mad, or, or I, I made them anything. It's like my response to any situation or what's said or whatever is always my choice. The other person's response is always their choice. So you can't make me feel anything and I can't make you feel anything. And yet, as we talk about these things, people are constantly using non-ownership language and, and, and saying the power for their reaction lies outside of them and somebody else, by virtue of what they said or did, made me feel a certain way. And, and I think that's complete fiction. We make our own choices. That's actually something that, um, it's another thing that when you think that way, it can be very intimidating to people. And I just, it's like one of the things that happens all the time to me because I'm a public figure in the zeitgeist movement and because I'm outspoken, there are people who get really insecure about it. And they don't, and because of the fact that I really don't care <laughs> that they dislike me, it, it yeah, bothers them so much because I, th- I don't care that they dislike me. It means they have yeah, no power. That's very interesting because I'm at a point in the past few years where, honestly, I like really nothing offends me. I mean, I mean and let me clarify that because I, I get, I'm a very um, passionate person, so I get disturbed and frustrated very, you know, that's, it could be a good thing, it could be a bad thing, depends how you look at it. But really, I'm at a point in life with the, that nothing offends me. I mean, I've been called this and that, and I really don't get offended by virtually anything. Yeah, we ran into that a lot, too, because people, you know, on the forums, you can't tell if somebody's really upset. And these people, this is one of the things actually people assumed about me that was not true. They thought that some of the things that people were saying to me on the Internet was bothering me way more than it was, because in fact, it doesn't bother me at all. They didn't know that I've been doing this for years, and I've been dealing with these people, like in the libertarian anarchist movements, man, the kind of Internet trolls you meet there, Make the ones with the zeitgeist movement like you know look like nothing because they think that freedom of speech is freedom to pimp slap anybody you want on the internet you know and so I just it's like the stuff that they're expecting to really freak me out just didn't bother me anymore and it mostly was just it wasn't because it's not an arrogant thing to not care what these people think it's it's not an ego thing really or me thinking I'm better than them it's more of an once you understand why they're acting that way it's so hard to really hold it against them. I mean, it's like, you're just kind of like, okay, well, the reason you're doing this stuff is because, you know, I'm, you don't like that I was right about something in a conversation we had a week ago, and you still can't handle it, so now you need to attack me. It doesn't, at that point, it's just, it kind of goes in one ear and out the other. It's like, you know, getting used to the fact that my, my shoulder hurts because I injured it you know, 10 years ago playing football, which I didn't. I'm just using it as an example. If I just sit up late every night thinking about the reason I have this pain in my shoulder, I'm not really going to be able to get anything done. But once I've accepted the fact that it's there, it just it doesn't bother you anymore, and it's the same thing, you know. And well, I think it's also that once you let go of all these things, where you, I mean, you know what you are. I mean, you, okay, you're a socialist, you're an ad, you know, all these things, when, when people say, say these things, you know, the, the typical, oh, you're, you're a faggot, you know, the typical meathead. I mean, you know you're not. So when you're comfortable with, you, with yourself and, and, you're, and you know who you really are because you've conducted some introspection, these things, I mean, 
you know, I always use the thing, oh, he's confident, okay? This person sees he's uh, arrogant. You know, this person's caring. Oh, they're too sensitive. So there's always flip sides. And when you understand these things and you let go of them, and you really know and, and you have some level of comfort with who you are, which sadly, seemingly most people don't, all these things, they really, okay, well, I'm sorry you see that way, but guess what? I'm not running a popularity contest. I am who I am. I'm going to say what I want to say. And, if, you know, like you said, you, if you don't want to hear it, okay. Yep. That's, you know, and it's, it's funny because it is kind of a delicate balance because, I mean, when, when you're talking like that, like one of the things that came up in that same conversation where we were talking about how to relate to people is that, there are, for example, a lot of times the people wish that Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows participated more in the forums. And they don't like me because they think that I'm too crass with them, crass translates into because I don't let them just go on saying things that are in, untrue or incorrect, and I ask them to actually provide evidence, and they don't like any of that. And I'm just like, if you think that I'm bad, if you really want to hear what it's like to interact with Jacques Fresco and Roxanne Meadows, you, you've got another thing coming. You don't know what's going to happen because – they don't tolerate this crap at all. I mean, I remember at the Michigan lecture, we had this girl who just wouldn't shut up about the idea that they might want to limit population. And Roxanne just looked at her and had enough of it and said, look, you know, it's not about population control. People want to bleep, you know, F word. And, <laughs> and there's birth control. You know, that, that's it. That, that's it. That's the end of the day. That, that, that's what we're talking about. Just totally just smack this girl down. And I'm just mm -hmm. like, and I'm not saying that's how you should always speak, but I was just like, this is, at, you know, there comes a point where Jacques in particular, I can tell, is just so impatient with BS because he's been dealing with it for so long and he just wants to get to the point, you know, and so many people let their, their, their insecurities get in the way of everything that they can't listen to anybody. You know, and that's the other thing I think that one of the things that, I, that I've run into problems with is like when it comes to things like admitting that you're wrong, one of the reasons people don't remember that I admit when I'm wrong is for, for the same reason that Doug, for example, um, does not talk about oceanography. If I don't know anything about a topic, I don't really talk about it. I may, and, and in fact, I'll ask questions and defer to somebody else with no drama whatsoever. And when I'm found to be wrong about something, it's so anticlimactic because I just admit to it and it's not a big deal to me mm -hmm. that, that they're so socially con Con, you know, convinced that it needs to be a big deal, that I'll be berated by that person for an hour about how I was wrong about this thing that I already admitted to being wrong about, like, weeks ago. You know, but, but they're not satisfied. So they've got to tell me why I was wrong for an hour, because they don't feel as though they're vindicated enough until they've beaten the subject to death with a club. <laughs> And I'm just like, can we get all, go on with this? It's like, I don't, okay, I already said that I was wrong about that. You know, wh why are we still talking about this? And that's when, it, at the end of the day, you start to recognize that his need for me to be wrong had more to do with ego, insecurity, self-perfection, and these are the things that really hinder communication more than anything else. You know, it's, it's worse than having a bad Internet connection. <laughs> Getting hung up on all the time. Yeah, so, you, might, you might as well just say to to people who are going there because, you know, it's, it's, it's really about them wanting to win anyway. So you might as well just say, okay, you win. And then, mm -hmm. and then stop the discussion. You win. Well, I also think for the need for people to be wrong, and this is kind of applies to politics is 
by, by making you somebody that's wrong, quote unquote, now you become a source of blame when something goes wrong. Oh, well, you know, he, you know, Neil and Jack were saying this, and now look at the situation, or the Republicans were doing this, and now look at the situation when. So I think it has like a, a many dynamic motivations to this obsession with people being wrong. You know, have, we have to have scapegoats. Well, yeah. I, I try to make sure that I talk to people about the fact that it's the ideology that I have a problem with or the methodology or the thoughts and not the people specifically. Very rarely does it, is it a person specifically who offends me. The, the ones who really bother me are like, you know, the reason that, for example, I, I went after Ayn Rand at one point, and the reason why is because some people just deify her, and they don't really know all of the dirty laundry on her. And it's very clear when you talk to some of these people because they quote her like anything she says is infallible. She's just this goddess of freedom. And I did my research because that's what my political mentor told me to do. Mike Gravel was like, I don't want you to worship me and you shouldn't be worshiping Ron Paul and you need to get to the bottom of this. And if anybody tells you that somebody is you know, good, then you need to research them. He's like, now equally, don't just automatically discredit them because a lot of people like them. But on the same token, you're going to find, you know, that you do your research, there's going to be some things you didn't like, you're not going to like about this guy you're representing. And he was right. Ron Paul has some theocratic tendencies that I didn't uncover until Mike urged me to look it up. You know, Ayn Rand, you know, it was just this person that the libertarians just revered. And after I got to know, you know, the person that she was in her real life, I was like, man, this person is so, you know, just, she was very cruel, insensitive, selfish. Uh, well, she she had a lot of experiences that you know. I mean, she had a pretty she she witnessed a lot of things. And, oh yeah, uh, she was a create she was a creature of her environment, just like everybody else. So I don't hate her. It's just people not recognizing that she came from a bad environment, and now to try to follow her is to take all that bad environmental practice and now put it in your own persona. Were you trying to say something, Jack? No. Okay. But um, man, but basically, you know, it's it's kind of a matter of don't judge the person and hate them for being who they are. It's more of a matter of, however, you do need to be careful about what kind of influences you allow in your life, and that includes like when I was saying about people not about people not being able to handle that I don't care about what they think of me. It's because I very jealously guard who it is I allow to have sway over my self-esteem because I've just met too many people who are like self-esteem vampires who, you know, who are terrible people in their lives and they just need to drag you down. And it's just, that's why, you know, and the other thing, I, I also don't have a lot of what I would call friendships because I'm so honest that a lot of people can't handle that, <laughs> you know, and, and the thing is, is rather than that bothering me, I'd actually, I look at it from a perspective of who, who really has real friendships. Because Quite of, liberating. You know, in our sick society, in most cases, you don't find out who your real friends are until it's 4 o'clock in the morning and you're bleeding and nobody's there to take you to the hospital. Which one of your friends answers the phone call? You know, which one of them comes and gets you? Because you know, you're going to find that a lot of those people that maybe you invited to all of your birthday parties and you know, made sure that they had seating at your wedding or whatever may not really be the friends that you thought they were, whereas this other group of people who knew who you were, who knew what kind of person you really were and represented who they were, well, now you know who your real friends are. And that's why at the end of the day, it's, it's kind of like the matrix. It's like, which pill do I take? Do I take the pill that tells me that I have 30 friends 
when in reality the matrix actually is telling me that I have 30 friends. But the truth of the matter is that I've only got like five. You know, I don't need the false friends. And in fact, they hold me back. You know, so. But anyway, um, I think we're tangenting a little bit here. I want to thank you, Jack, for being on. And I've loved this show. And I, I can't wait until, um, you know, we get to talk more about consensus. I guess that's coming up in the future chapter. Yep. Excellent. Yeah, I'd like to hear more about, um, I've never taken into account or thought of this uh, safety check. I've, um, I'd like to learn more about that personally. I like the process. You know, what was, what was interesting about that, and when we talk about this again on the air, I'll, I'll say more about this, is I, we, when we created our consensus training, we never saw this addressed in any of the books that we read about consensus. They never talked about safety uh, being such an important issue. They, they talk about techniques. They talk about a lot of other things. But we found out that when the group was not feeling, when anyone in the group was not feeling safe, that's when the process started to break down. And when we stopped and addressed that, that's when we could start moving back towards really coming into a group oneness and really making a, a consensus decision. And that's true whether it's a group of people or if you're communicating with just one other person. That safety level has to be there because if not, people have got their borders up and it makes the... Uh, decision-making so much more difficult. And it's funny that, that some people are so caught up in that that they defend their right to be cruel to other people. <laughs> it's like, you know, on the forums, we get into that all the time. People will be debating, and then we'll lock a thread because they're attacking each other, and they'll want us to, they'll say that that was despotic of us <laughs> to stop them from beating each other up on the Internet. And, and we're like, you're not effectively communicating anyway. Well, who are you to say that? Um, it's logical. If you guys have now bound, if you guys are now down to slinging insults at each other, then co the communication has already ended. You know, yeah. you, and it's not yeah. our job to sit here and facilitate the two of you having your own little war. And what you're talking about is great. And I just wish more communities would would come together. You know, even if it's just groups of friends, and recognize that it is the benefit of everybody that your conversation environment be free of that kind of silly pollution, because that's really what it is. It's, it's pollution when you let people, you know, bring up stuff that's irrelevant to a conversation so that they can lash out at somebody who made them feel insecure for being right. But it's called debate, which is why I'm, I don't even like to use debate. I mean, like, oh, well, we're debating. Oh, okay, well, that's what you call it. Yeah, and, and again, Neil, there's, you say, people who made them feel insecure, mm -hmm. again, I would say they can't make them feel anything. The person's got to choose to go to that feeling. Right. That's very true. I think that's what Douglas was kind of trying to say when he said that people kind of need to toughen up. It's, it's not to say we want you to be Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's kind of a matter of accepting responsibility for yourself, you know, and, and recognizing that you're the one who's allowing yourself to be dragged down to that level. And that's, that's actually a critical part of, like, some of my previous religious beliefs that I still hold on to is that uh, one of my favorite authors, her name is D.J. Conway, she wrote in a book about shamanistic stuff, was that you need to take responsibility for yourself. And that doesn't just mean, you know, uh, doing your homework and paying your bills. It was a matter of 
if you're having negative interactions with people, then you need to take responsibility for how you react to that. And it, that may also include that some people are just not going to be good for your life, and you may need to cut them loose. But in situations like this, like you're talking about, it is personal responsibility to say, this person is in some way making me uncomfortable, so therefore I'm not contributing to the conversation. I need to do something about this. But you know, again, again, that person cannot make me feel uncomfortable. That's right. got to be my choice. However, my choice may be I'm, I may find that I'm feeling uncomfortable in response to what they're saying or doing, and, and I acknowledge that I'm choosing to feel that way, and now what do I need to do to take care of myself? Well, I probably need to get myself out of this situation and communicating with this person. Right. That's, I think that it's, it's obvious. I wish more people thought about it like that. That's actually part of that whole attitude I was talking about earlier about not allowing people to affect my self-esteem. You know, it, it's, it's not about not allowing people to critique me. That, that's not the issue. It's, it's kind of a matter of being very careful what the quality of the person in question is before you allow them to harm you. You know, and you really should never let anybody harm you. It's more of a matter of, you know, if you're talking to somebody, you know, who obviously has all sorts of issues and they're projecting them at you, you should be able to identify that. And if you can't, you know, once again, as you said, it's your choice to let this person do this to you or not. You know, it doesn't mean you shouldn't listen to them. and It doesn't mean you should dismiss every negative thing that anybody has ever said about you. But it does mean that, you know, if you are letting somebody else make you feel insecure, then you have to take responsibility for that, too. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because it's such a different mindset, I think, that most people just don't get it. It's like, it's like the difference between, say, hard and soft martial arts styles. You know, in Tai Chi or Aikido, rather than that energy that somebody is throwing at you being something that you need to meet with equal force, which is what most people think that they have to do, you know, you just let it pass you by because their force is not relevant. And, in fact, you know, you could use it against them in martial arts, but I think it's more of a matter of you don't stop a bull by standing right in front of it. You just kind of step aside casually, you know, and that's how you deal with that negative energy. Yep. Well, you know, I said that this wasn't going to be a three-hour show, but it's slowly getting towards that. I want to thank both of you guys for being on. Um, this has been an amazing conversation, Jack. Um, I, I did want to ask one thing. Uh, thank you, Eric, for muting. Um, what, what is the state of the Community Planet Foundation right now, if you can touch on that? And just, you know, if, is there any news or anything you'd like to share? Um, we are, you know, we're always just one connection away from having this thing happen. And there's a couple of things that are happening right now. We've got a person who's got the technology for a full trash system that, that we've got uh, something that we're working on with a particular country. It's not here in the United States, but we're connected with the right people and they can take all the trash from the city and turn it into soil and turn it into energy and and without pollution get rid of the rest of it and without putting it into a landfill and this would be a huge boon to any system, any city that is uh, for instance in San Diego they they ship their 
in trucks that take there's countless trucks every day that call the trash all the way to Yuma, Arizona to be buried in a landfill. And if that trash could be turned into soil and energy, then it would be a huge boon. And this person who's got this technology is very committed to the vision of the Community Planet Foundation and has said that they this could be the cash cow for the community, not only you know, supplying one community, but also being the ability to create more communities around this same system because it gives it an ongoing revenue stream to the community. So that's one possibility, and we're also dealing with with somebody uh, who can uh, remove the zoning restrictions off of land because that's one of the big bugaboos is the whole system is set up as one parcel, one house, one parcel, one house, as opposed to people having land and then deciding like what is the best use of this land without having to divide it up into parcels. So that's another development that's underway. And, um, you know, there's any number of other connections that could take place because we're just that one connection away. Did you have something to add, Eric? Yeah, Jack, I'm, I'm working on, on uh, that, that aspect you sent uh, over here in China as far as getting su the support you need to get that, that project uh, up and running as well. I can't. Eric, if I can send you the same uh, information that was sent out to another country, did I already do that or? or um, you sent me basically a three-page um, summary and uh, about the company. Oh, okay. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, there's there's more information, but that's a good start. Yeah, I'm, I've been slimming it down and just putting the, the, the key points and getting it translated into to, uh, Chinese. <laughs> yeah. Because, you know, there's a lot of money, excuse me, a debt or money or debt over here flying around. So it might, well, I ho hopefully it, we can help you out in that end. And they also have a tremendous problem with trash, I would guess. Yeah, I'd like to, if we have time, or maybe I should call, what's the person's contact name? Um, at the bottom of the document. Anyway, well, let's continue with it. Yeah. Yeah, we'll conclude the show because it's almost over anyway, and you guys can talk about that. <laughs> um, Excellent. Hey, uh, just one idea for, your listen, uh, for anybody listening. I'd, I'd like to, um, maybe some show with Jack kind of, address the issue about how the, you know, the Venus Project and the Zeitgeist Movement, they focus on the, you know, they, they have the belief, which I accept, of, of, of communication and really believing that they need this. Whereas Jack says, you know, and I agree in many ways, that people also will need to see it. Um, so I think there's a little discrepancy between, like, what Jack, what Jack kind of thinks and other people think and what pe people in the movement think. And hopefully I'd like to see some more cohesion or in, you know, this. Because I see there's a little contention arising, uh, especially in the movement, that being that there's so many people. I think you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. 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 I, I agree with Jack in many ways that uh, people need to see it, what it's going to look like. You know, we can talk and talk about oneness and abundance and all these things, but I still think a vast majority of people will need to see it. Like, you know, hey, I'll believe it when I see it. Yep. 
So I'd like, I personally would like, would really love to see um, this sort of bridging and working together with people who want to focus on consciousness and communicating the ideas and developing technologies and actually people who are um, making these communities, whatever they're called. If that's if that's just an idea, I don't know. You can put you can think about that, Neil, and uh, no, actually, uh, that, that sounds very good. Actually, I remember uh, um, I was just talking, like I was saying about my libertarian friends who want to start communities that are libertarian. Um, mm. That there's something called a federation that you can form that doesn't really have power. Uh, it's covered in the left libertarian video I was talking about. It's an example that these communities, these freedom respecting communities, should be able to form federations, even if they don't necessarily agree on every little aspect of how things are done in their one community, that they can form federations together of groups of people who have at least agreed that, you know, that they're part of these, you know, a larger base of communities. I mean, we can explore all of that later, but I, I want to thank you all. Go ahead and uh, make your final comment, Jack. Um, final comment. Uh, I hope everybody's enjoyed if they're still out there. If they've held on for this long, we want to hear from you because you are a true trooper if you've held on this long. So uh, go to www.communityplanet.org and look at the video. And if you're interested, contact us at Community Planet. Excellent. Bravo. And also uh, visit v-radio.org. That's v-minus, essentially v-radio.org. Um, and uh, please consider a donation. I've got to get some cash together before July, and um, I'll appreciate it and reward you with lots and lots more V-Radio content. Um, and uh, I guess, Jack, uh, uh, we can talk about this if you want to do another one of these tomorrow. I'm trying to do a show every day. Uh, are you available? Uh, I can be available tomorrow. At 9 p.m. Eastern Time? Sure. All right. Well, then, listeners, you can listen to this. You can look forward to more of Jack Freed's uh, CommunityPlanet.org Foundation book, uh, The Next Evolution. And um, thanks again uh, to Eric for coming on the call. You're welcome anytime. Just let me know. No problem. Um, you actually have a unique perspective being in China um, and also understanding the Western world at the same time that I think would be very valuable in future shows. So, Excellent. Thanks again, everybody, for tuning in. I'm going to leave everybody with some words from Roxanne Meadows and Jacques Fresco. Say good night, everybody. Good night. Good night, everybody. This is Roxanne Meadows. And this is Jacques Fresco. And you're listening to V Radio. All right, guys. Bye. 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 There we go. Well, did that thing hang up or not?